Damn it. is over but desmond is back here we are on down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on poster recaps and it's the season two finale live together die alone mike bloom oh my god oh my goodness it's all, oh it's all here it's happening it's another here. season in the books it's happening we're welcoming in a big fan favorite character and uh, as we are wont to say here in exultation all right but a little less resigned than our good friend Shrekman here, as Desmond Hume is here, and he is going to join, he's going to live together with them. Uh, nobody really dies alone in this episode, even though the title indicates it, but wow, season two finale. It has been uh, an up and down season, it's been an up and down time in the world. Josh, I am have so many mixed emotions as to actually finishing off season two, because this really does feel like the end of an era in Lost. In a big way, for sure. I mean, I still, you know, I I still view Lost as two books. Uh, there's there's book one, which is seasons one through three, and book two, which is four through six. So we still have a little bit more meat on the bone before we're finished with book one and, and act one, as far as I see it. But it's a huge milestone. Uh, it's even a milestrum uh, that we are that we're here through through the end of season two. Uh, and, and it really does feel like it's just yesterday that we started doing this. Although, as we're recording this, it's July 2nd as we are recording this podcast, which means uh, 12 official months that we have been doing Down the Hatch. Uh, Holy. It's, not a, it's not a full year, but we've gotten an August through July cycle at this point. Yeah, we're, we're, we're infringing on, we're knocking at the door right now uh, of that one-year premiere date. And hopefully, you know, Locke will let us in this time and we're not going to have to blow our way in. But that is even crazy to consider that, you know, we're only through two seasons of Lost. But that being said, these are two, I think, the the two biggest seasons in terms of episode number and episode length. So it's almost like we're through the thickest portions. And even though, like you said, uh, the first book of Lost is not completely done, this episode does serve as a bit of a pivot in a number of ways, including, you know, the 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 deconstruction of the titular hatch moving into the other setup into season three and oh so much happening including just another game changer and really just bringing in a complete wild card character and filling us in on nearly his entire backstory before they then weird him up to all capacities starting next season it, this is a gutsy finale um i think that that is that is the first thing i want to say about hmm. the finale that i think that this is this is a it's a ballsy finale it's a finale that that dares to 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 reconcile the hatch it's a finale that dares to reconcile the Michael and Walt storyline. 
Uh, it's a it's a finale that that dares to to further out the others uh, and demystify them a little bit or begin that process because that's going to be a big piece of the next season. Um, it's going to be a finale in which uh, we find out how Oceanic Eight One Five crashed, how the mm-hmm. plane crash came about, and it's a finale that is going to be hinged upon the the shoulders of a character we've met before, but only in very limited capacity up to this point. Uh, and really trusting that the audience would remember this character from very early on in season two in like any kind of real detail so that the moment when uh, that we listened in on at the start of this podcast where Jack and Said and Sawyer find him on the boat is like an important reveal. It's like, oh, it's the hatch guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's about turning hatch guy into somebody who's more than just crazy drunk hatch guy. How do you turn that guy into a human being? So it's a lot of things. There's going to be a purple sky incident. We're going to introduce the first real possibility of uh, of hope of rescue in the penny ending. This is a gutsy finale. It's a gutsy finale because there's so much going on. That bordering on, (laughs) bordering on too much going on, maybe to to make the whole meal make sense. And I think you and I have have parsed this out back and forth. Um, that that you and I, I think, are in lockstep that season two's finale is for us uh, of the six finales, the bottom ranked finale. Yes. And I still think that we're damning, you know, with with faint praise. I don't know if that's exactly what we're doing here, but like it's 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 still a season finale of Lost, which means it's an excellent episode of the show. But I think it is an episode that is flawed in in some some ways that are meaningful and some ways that I think are understandable. But in some ways that the more and more I revisit this episode, I don't think I can ignore. Uh, Mm. I love this episode. I have great sense memory of watching this episode for the first time and seeing the sky go kablooey and all of that and just being like sort of in thunderstruck awe about it. But this is an episode, actually, that when I stop down and think about it and chew on it a little bit more after the watching experience, I think leaves me with a drier taste in my mouth than even the, the final, final episode of Lost. Well, that's because uh, you're, you're eating food that's 30 years old, Josh, from that pantry. There tends to be a dry so. taste to it. But yeah, I think, I mean, going, speaking on sense memory, uh, speaking towards, you know, I guess our respective experiences watching the finale, I do remember... With Live Together, Die Alone, probably more than any other finale, it was very much like the Millhouse Van Houten Van Houten fireworks factory experience for me of being like, okay, let's just see what happens when the button doesn't get pushed. Okay, let's just get to the ferry and see what happens with the others. You know, there were there are these two big moments that really cap off the episode, though surprisingly, I did not remember that they do not actually cap off the episode. And we'll talk about the weirdness in the choice of the last two scenes in the episode over the conclusion of those two storylines, but that's a conversation for a couple of hours down the line. But I do remember watching this finale in particular because those were two points, two goalposts that I personally wanted to get to. And I think that's also a symbolism of, again, sort of the shift in some Lost fans' perspective, starting with season two of almost plot above character, of let's get these mysteries solved. What happens if you don't press the button? What do the others want with Jack and Kate and Sawyer and Hurley? That it almost makes you want to blow past all the other stuff that's going on. So it was nice to re-watch this under the context of, much like we're re-watching the show right now, Really enjoying the journey over the destination, even though you and I are both satisfied with the ultimate destination of let's sort of pick apart the steps that we take to get there. That being said, 
the only other finale we can really compare this to at the moment is Exodus. And I personally feel that while Exodus, really, I feel like every scene has some sort of meaning to it, whether it's a plot meaning or a character meaning or an emotional meaning or a thematic meaning, this finale feels like this is the, the first finale, I guess, out of the two where I, I personally felt the time. Uh, where I, I could sort of see scenes that were like, okay, we're spending a lot of time in the jungle. Okay, we're going back to the sailboat a lot. And I, I do feel like it tried to negotiate what it did in Exodus of trying to juggle all these storylines at once and really uh, demonstrate how great the ensemble cast is. And it is a risky play. And I would say it has more successes than failures overall, but that being said, more failures than Exodus. To cop your statements... I agree that I think there's a lot of really great stuff in here, but I do think there are some foibles. Spoiler alert, it's not a 4.2 episode, in my opinion, and and we'll certainly point some of those out, as well as some of the really great stuff that decides to bring in here at the 11th hour of Season 2. All right, now that everybody's sufficiently triggered, everyone's like, it's not a 4.2! Well, let's let's see. Let's let's dig in and let's find out. Uh, I will say, and I think that this is important uh, to to state off the bat, that there is some behind-the-scenes components uh, that are worth meditating on as we go through the conversation about this episode. Uh, From the official Lost podcast, May 26th, 2006, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse talked about the writing and the creation of of this finale. Uh, this is from Lindelof. He says, We started writing the finale just about a month ago, four and a half weeks ago, and we wrote it in conjunction with our amazing writing staff very quickly. Um, so this is from a podcast on May 26, 2006, two days after the air date of May 24, 2006. Damon Lindelof is saying they started writing the finale four and a half weeks before that recording of a podcast, two days after the episode itself aired. Lindelof continues, it had to be written quickly in order to give everyone in Hawaii the amount of time they needed to actually shoot it. It was actually shot in about 17 days. The reality is there was a huge, huge effort made on the part of over 300 people in an effort to essentially provide the finale that you watched last night in about three and a half weeks. That final moment when Penny Widmore picks up the phone and thinking, wow, we shot that five days ago. When you think about sort of the gags that we did, having those helicopter shots with the boat out there and the foot with the toes and the magnetism sequence and the lockdown, Desmond walking out of the prison, I actually felt watching it, wow. Carlton Cuse adds, it was so weird. There was no time between when we finished the show and when it aired. It was completely unlike any experience that we've ever had. I can't think of a show where I've seen anything put together as quickly as we did in this finale. So there are two things to note on that. One is, I think, when you're considering the amount of time that was allotted for this episode's creation, both the writing phase and then the literal like production uh, of, of like shooting it and then and then editing it and then putting the music together and all of that. The fact that this happens in a four and a half week span, all of that is absolutely insane. Okay. And I never knew that before. And it does make stuff like um, the destruction of the hatch and the four toed statue especially mesmerizing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, am, I am so impressed uh, uh, based on that turnaround. I think it also simultaneously explains some, uh, some, some sloppiness in some of the storytelling. Um, and not necessarily even um, like the writing choices necessarily, so much as like maybe some editorial choices. Yes. Um, but I mean, I guess even then, like there's, there's one thing in particular that has always bothered me about this episode and it's the timing of the purple sky incident and the reaction to it. 
Um, it makes no sense to me. And that is a, a thing that I think if, if there's more time on the clock and the creators of Lost in the writer's room are able to like beat out a little bit more of like, yeah, maybe it doesn't make a ton of sense that the Purple Sky thing happens before Michael and Walt leave and everybody just goes right about their business mm-hmm. as if nothing happened. Maybe that's not going to read very well. Um, but with the tight timeline being what it is, they they don't suss that out. I wonder if you asked Damon and Carlton about it today, A, if they would really remember, because I think that uh, they are probably so fried from the experience of Lost <gasps> that it wouldn't surprise me if there's just like, yeah, I don't really remember exactly how that goes. I think that that is a totally uh, a possible a possible answer. Um, or if they would like... If they, if they would look back on that and be like, yeah, that would be a thing that we would we would rearrange, we would fix. I think that Damon is pretty on the record and Carlton, too, of like, no regrets, no retreat, no surrender, lost is what it is, and they don't look back on it. Um, this is, I think, that whole timeline of, of events is very perplexing to me, but it is it is made more understandable given, like, the really crazy production rush that must have been surrounding this episode in a perfect world there was more time on the clock and i think that this is uh like an airtight rock solid completely uh inarguable 4.2 but i think that there are some things around it that are just like a little bit rough that you can challenge the notion of just because it's a season finale maybe it's not guaranteed a Mm 4.2 i'll tell you mike i'm not set on where i'm landing with this yet uh, I want to talk it through more, and I'm and I want to chew on on this aspect of it. That you this are was a chewing hard, on so much in this podcast. There, there's there is a there is a lot uh, there is a lot of consideration in the creation of this episode. Making a finale is not a nothing deal. Making a finale uh, for an ep- for you know for a season of Lost with all of the stuff that they've been juggling in the air is not a nothing deal. Uh, and especially because I think that they they had bitten off so much uh, thematically this season that there was so much to express. There was so much uh, to consider within the bounds of the story that I, I, I think it's... It's been an uneven ride throughout season two, and I think that that's something that we had walked into this season feeling, and I don't think that we're walking away feeling very differently about <laughs> that. Um, so I, I don't think it's – maybe it's not a huge surprise to me that season two ends in a way that like makes you like bob and weave a little bit more mm-hmm. um, than usual, even as a diehard Lost fan. And I know – we are not speaking for everybody on that. There are people who say this is like a, a lights out 20 out of 10 perfect episode of television. All fair in, in Lost and War. Um, I, think, I think for us, maybe it's hitting a little bit differently this time around. I think it's it's a microcosm of the season, to your point, and that I think there are some inconsistencies, that there's some really good stuff, and there's some stuff and some choices that make you scratch your head a little bit. And we'll certainly get into it. I know even besides... Uh, some of the editorial choices. I know there were certainly some initial scenes that were put in that maybe built upon previous scenes that I think would certainly help string plot points together rather than sort of feel like you need to rush from plot point to plot point to end up on that dock with the purple sky, as you mentioned. Uh, I think we could certainly put a pin in like the, you know, would Damon and Carlton regret the end of season two because some very recent news has come to light that hints towards yes, but I do think, especially as we approach season three, that might be more of a discussion for our feedback show. Uh, But yeah, it's a really interesting aspect. First, I never knew that Lost had like the schedule of South Park for one episode and really getting everything together in a week. And that speaks towards just the absolute marathon-esque endurance of work ethic that the team at Lost had and the absolute passion that they had, each and every one of them, to be able to produce an episode that they did with such a 
limited time frame. I do wonder how they got there in the first place. You know, why they why they were only able to write the season finale a month before. And I mean, I guess you can imagine that, like, the final plot points were up on the board for the entire season. But when push came to shove, for some reason, they only had that quick amount of time to actually fill in the blanks. And I think maybe that results in maybe some less airtight stuff uh, than maybe some of the other finales do. And who knows, maybe this process also made them uh, change their, their plotting out a little bit. But we talked about this a bit with, like, the middle of season one as well, right? About uh, Damon sort of yearning to move on and how Carlton sort of reinvigorated his attitude towards the show and how that might reflect in the episode. So I think we can take that into consideration. But that being said, this is a, a fascinating look at the show in its place in lost history, uh, in both what we're saying goodbye to, who we're saying welcome to, and also, I guess, everything that's happening behind the scenes as they were rushing, rushing, rushing to get everything made before, you know, the shoemaker comes in and is able to marvel at his creation. Yeah, I, I want to say I, I love this episode. I think it's just one that's worth considering some of the some of the blemishes on it. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's worthy of conversation as far as I'm concerned. But I definitely, in the fine balance of things, uh, love this episode a lot more. Then I do not. Uh, with all of that said, let's go forth into the jungle. Before we do, let's take a quick uh, moment to, to thank our sponsors for this episode. Support for today's episode comes from Progressive Insurance. Fun fact, Progressive customers qualify for an average of six discounts when they sign up for Progressive Auto Insurance. Discounts for things like enrolling in automatic payments, insuring more than one car, going paperless, and, of course, being a safe driver. Plus, customers who bundle their auto with home or add renter's insurance save an average of 12% on their auto. There's so many ways to save when you switch. And once you're a customer with Progressive, you can get unmatched claim service with 24-7 support online or by phone. It's no wonder why more than 20 million drivers trust Progressive and why they've recently climbed to the third largest auto insurer in the country. Get a quote online at Progressive.com in as little as five minutes and see how much you could be saving. Auto insurance from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Home and renter's insurance not available in all states. Provided and serviced by affiliated and third-party insurers. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. Let's go forth into the jungle. Live together. Die alone. Directed by Jack Bender. Written by Kius and Lindelof. It aired May 24th, 2006. And it centers on Desmond Hume. Before we get into this, Josh, what do you make of the title? Because obviously this is a callback to Jack's famous speech from season one. Jack's going to make an off, uh, like an offhand reference to the phrase in this finale. I don't think we'll hear it until the next finale when Rose has a fun little meta moment and pokes fun at it. But do you derive any meaning from the choice to put Jack's particular phrase in this episode? Yeah, I think uh, Michael broke the rule. You know, and it's no coincidence to me that the that the the line is it, it the the titular line comes in a conversation between Jack and Michael when Michael is crying in the woods and uh you know freaking out in the woods and Jack comes out for to him and and Michael uh you know thanks him for for coming with him to to rescue his son and Jack knows everything that Michael is doing at this point or at least a pretty good shape of what's going on with Michael and he says live together die alone man uh, and it's like you broke the sacred vow. If you had come to us, we could have figured this out. Instead, you killed us. Like mm -hmm. you killed, you actively killed members of our crew, and you killed whatever trust we've got. Um, so I think you know a, a title. It's ideal if it if it uh, if it hits everybody. Um, I think it hits Michael the best. I think there are ways in which you could apply the idea to what Desmond does. 
um, that Desmond uh, goes to, you know, effectively die alone by blowing the dam, even though he's going to survive it so that, you know, we're living together or else we're all just going to get mutilated by this this hot blast of electromagnetism. But I think it hits especially hard as it pertains to Michael and the betrayal of A15. Yeah, I think that I actually think this this phrase is applicable across multiple storylines i would say at least the primary two again we can sort of talk about the everything aboard the elizabeth uh later on as well but i i think that remember that the edicts live together die alone came when jack sort of gave this big speech in response to you know boone had hoarded the water and everyone sort of gets in a fight and is screaming at one another and i i think sort of the message behind it is that we need to all be working together or if we splinter apart, that's when, you know, the shit really hits the fan. And I think that episode is really indicative of that. And that, like you mentioned, Michael is working for an ulterior motive that Jack and Kate and Sawyer and Hurley are not. But down in the hatch, you really have loggerheads, lockerheads with Locke and Mr. Echo and Desmond to a certain extent. And as a result, it nearly causes the world to explode. And it causes at least the implosion of the hatch. And I think that sort of is is a big sign as to the danger that can come when people are not united under a cause. And this is also a really interesting uh, point in the story of John Locke in that this will be far from the last time that Locke is going to kind of split off from the main group. We'll see it at the end of season three. We'll see it at the beginning of season four, in fact. And this is one of the first moments where I think Locke truly does break away from the group and sort of pursue his own line of thinking. And so he is the one, much like Michael, who is really breaking this rule. And as a result, as you mentioned, if you do break this rule, some bad stuff is bound to happen. Were it not for Desmond, they would all die together, ironically enough. Yeah, uh, I guess Locke is able to redeem himself in the eyes of his uh, his fellow eight one fivers, but Michael truly does die alone, right? You know, yeah. I guess like he's on a boat filled with people. I mean, Maybe I guess him I- and the people on the freighter who blew up. Maybe they're all all in some afterlife. Yeah, I guess the together. question is like, if you die sacrificing yourself to protect someone, does that mean you die alone, or is it like yeah. because their spirit, not literally their spirit, because Michael will become a spirit, but because their spirit is with you when you make this decision, does that sort of uh, make you more united with them when you choose what to do? When you sacrifice yourself for a group, does that put you in the live together or the die alone camp? Yeah, it's a good question. All right, let's talk about the episode specifically, and it begins uh, hot on the heels of where we left off. There's the boat. Uh, and Charlie's like, rescued! Are we saved? Uh, so, I mean, again, this is, uh, of course, ironic in retrospect. I do not think that the Charlie stuff was on the board at this point, but man, so gutting to have Charlie be the one most, you know, jocular about rescue at this point in time. Really spectacular. Uh, so it's going to be Jack... Sawyer and Saeed going off towards the boat. They immediately just do it. Well, I guess not immediately. We'd get a little bit of a Babe Watch moment. Uh, as sort Sawyer of. And Saeed. As, yeah, 67% uh, Babe Watch. Because Jack Shepard, for some reason, I don't know, maybe he's feeling like not so great that day, but he, is, he decides to keep his shirt on for whatever shirts reason. Shirts on. Shirt, uh, shirts and skins. Jack's on shirts. Sawyer and Saeed are on skins. Uh, and I guess Desmond's on shirts mostly. And he's on he's the got boat. a very fetching shirt. I don't know where he got it from because I'm pretty sure he ran off, you know, with his Dharma uniform and the white T-shirt underneath it. Maybe he uh, found it aboard the Elizabeth. Yeah, there's there's clothes there. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe uh, Inman had like brought some yeah, clothes he set over. Set it up. 
He'd set it but up. But I, I maybe and maybe Charlie is also so enamored by the ship that he forgets he's such a good swimmer that he should definitely be in that water, right? Yeah, I think so. Like uh, there's no heroin in his pocket anymore that gives him the excuse to not go swimming. He should definitely be leading the pack here, but for whatever reason he decides to stay not, behind. He's not. Uh Desmond's on the boat. He's shooting at them as they get on the boat, playing opera music. Uh, and they kick open the door after the bullet stop, and you just hear him go, ah, damn it, and Jack just, like, boots the, the thing down. And it's a, it's a cool look where this is sort of like a down the hatch of sorts, yep. right, uh, of down, uh, down the hatch of the boat, and there's Desmond, and he's just a sweaty wreck cracking up as he's just pounding booze. Yeah, so uh, the song is apparently of Voi Che Sapete, or, or Cave Sapete. It's an Italian uh, aria and apparently it's from Mozart. The character who sings it is Cherubino, a lovesick young page boy. So, of course, this is Desmond essentially doing, like, the highbrow thing where you're really lovesick and you blast, like, really sappy love songs to just, like, make you emotionally reconcile yourself as you believe that your life and the world is ending and you're stuck in this purgatory forever. But the one thing that I love about this is that there... Desmond's return does bring about a lot of fun parallels from those first three episodes, and one of them is we begin this episode the way we end Man of Science, Man of Faith, with uh, instead of Jack looking at Desmond and saying you, it's Desmond looking up at Jack and saying you. But I think one is a lot more dispirited and drunk than the other in this situation. So who knows how long Desmond's already been drinking, um, but he's going to go on at least a two-night bender. Uh, uh, he's going to be, you know, uh, when, we, when we come back from the, the title card, Desmond's on the beach, it's nighttime, he's by the fire, he's just getting schwasties, and Jack's going to be like, hey, you want some food? And Desmond literally rolls his eyes at Jack, uh, and he's saying, uh, yeah, uh, so I had a boat, didn't tell you about that. I was trying to get the hell out of here. I should have been in Fiji in less yeah. than a week. Should have been doing my pregame press. Yeah, I should, I should have been getting ready for uh, my first one out interview. Uh, I don't know if first one out uh, certainly doesn't exist anymore. It didn't really exist back then either. Uh, he says, the first piece of land wasn't Fiji. It was here. It was this island. This is all that's left. He says, we're in a bloody snow globe, brother. Yeah, there's no outside world. There's no escape. And... While this is speaking towards, again, Desmond's sort of despondent way of looking at the world, it is sort of much like we talked about with Dave, sort of capitulating on a very popular loss theory at the time, which I believe in vain of the famous or infamous St. Elsewhere finale that many people thought that, again, the island was sort of like this, this insular world that might be within another reality. And Desmond sort of hinting to that, I think, was another way the writer sort of made a tongue-in-cheek poke at a theory that did not turn out to be correct. Um, so he asks Jack, you guys still pushing that button? Uh, Jack's like, yeah, we're still pushing it. Uh, and we get to our first flashback and it's Desmond's final day in prison. It's release day. Um, I don't think the, uh, the series ever overtly tells us why Desmond was in prison to begin with. Yeah. I mean, Inman's going to say later on, or Desmond's going to say later on, right? That he like broke rank, broke orders, whatever that was. I don't know if it's something as extreme as like what Saeed was put through, or if it was something as simple as like, you didn't tuck in your bed tightly enough. So now you're disbanded from the army. Yeah. We're, We're not entirely sure. I'm sure when we get into more Desmond flashback slash like it's tough to call them flashback episodes when we start getting into like the flashes before your eyes of it all when he's experienced this in real time but we'll still call it 22 is totally a flashback though yeah um i would say i would say and maybe this is something we can we can track um my my feeling is 
he broke ranks by uh, by leaving boot camp or wherever it was he left <laughs> in the constant to go and find Penny. And he just like bailed for however long he bailed for, right? Um, if that already happened because of the time travel component of it, and maybe he just doesn't remember those pieces of it, and he doesn't remember exactly why he left, but Penny remembers, it would help explain why, why Penny in... Um, even in the flashbacks here is already so ready to accept Desmond back Mm -hmm. because she has like started to think that maybe there is like this cosmic connection with him. Why she's so game to look for him after he goes fully missing. Why she's so prepared for the Christmas phone call in the constant. I think that that could be it. Um, I think without any better explanation than that, I'm, I'm good to accept that is the reason why Desmond was in jail because the show never bothers to give us any real explanation either. Yeah, I would say that if there are any people who have experience in the armed forces uh, as to like whether temporarily vacating boot camp is liable for prison time. Well, it goes AWOL for, you know, days uh, for the constant. Yeah, I would be interested to see, like, if that punishment did indeed fit the crime, because then that would make sense. I don't think we do. Did they also say how long he was in I don't think jail so. for? I don't think so. I don't yeah. think so. You yeah, know, even if it's a month, he's going to be, he's not going to be happy about yeah. having been in jail for no, a month. No, he has some great uh, hair going on here with the short-haired Desmond. Uh, to make a brief like mention of Desmond. our mutual Desmond. friend, uh, and not to be confused with our own mutual friends, Josh, of which we have many, but this is going to be a Dickens book that is obviously going to recur wholly throughout the course of this episode. Uh, it is the last novel that Charles Dickens ever wrote. I believe the story is that it was sort of like the ending in particular was sort of sloppily put together at the last minute due to his death. Uh, and so it was sort of like a, a slapdash thing, which again, uh, not to call this episode slapdash, but does I- ironically mirror maybe the process for putting this episode together. But there are a lot of comparisons, uh, particularly, basically, almost every relationship in the book of importance is around fathers and daughters. Uh, and that is going to be obviously a big, big, big theme as part of Desmond's life. Uh, and also just this idea of Desmond, you know, this will be the last thing that I ever read. I think uh, Carlton and, and Cuse, uh, and that they're the same person, <laughs> d- 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 <laughs> yeah. Damon and Carlton uh, said that I believe they, they took the idea from John Irving, who I think said that this would be the case, that they he would read Our Mutual Friend as the last book he ever wrote. But I like it as a thematic piece as well for Desmond because, you know, there's going to be a big question mark after this episode of like, okay, uh, are we done with Desmond then? Did he just come back to the island to turn the failsafe key? But I think that the reverberating idea with Desmond as a character is that this is probably the character that has the most unfinished business. That, like, he can't leave the island uh, or he can't do certain things because there's still a use for him in some capacity. That's why Charles Winmore brings him back to the island. That's why he is the titular package. And I think this is a great indicator of that, that, like... He has to keep continuing forward as long as he hasn't read that book because that has to be the last thing that he does. Similarly, like there are things that he has to do before he can truly move on, which again also echoes into the elements of season six too. Yeah, uh, I love how the, the the guy who's you know who's checking him out as if he's going grocery shopping, Desmond. Uh, <laughs> hey, did you find like, everything a, okay, Mister Hume? Yeah, it's a nice idea that you're going to read this as your final book as long as you know when you're going to die. 
Uh, I do wonder about that. Like, how do you know, Desmond, that you're going to be able to read this as your final? Book? Yeah, considering that we'll find out very soon that he has visions of when certain people die, but they're almost always not correct. What if? What if it's because he reads the book? He's like, it. It's so bad. He hates it so much that it just breaks his heart and he mm, dies. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe, maybe uh, he ends up. You know, when we see him later contemplating the gun, maybe it's because he actually had read our mutual friend. And he's like, that's yeah. what I spent all my time waiting for. This stupid book that's B that's plus fine. at best. Uh, all right, so the guy lets him go. Long live the queen. Enjoy your sodding book. Uh, and Desmond goes outside, and it's pouring rain. And it's not just the return of Desmond in this episode. It's the debut of one of the, the series arching big bads. Here he is, Chucky Wids with his limo. Uh, and he's going to pull up for Desmond to, to get in the car. Let's listen in on this conversation between Charles Widmore and Desmond. You want to ride? Not with you. Get in the car. Spend your present? Actually, two presents. One of these boxes contains your past, Hume. The other, your future. Go ahead, open it. Bastard, you know that. The fact that she never received your sentiments is good for her. Good because, as far as she's concerned, you've forsaken her. And that's the way it's going to stay. Isn't it now? Penelope's moved on, Hume. She's getting married. This is for your new life, away from my daughter. The conditions are simple. No contact, no calls, no post. You just run away, Desmond. And what makes you think I would just run away? Because you're a coward. Josh, I have a bold prediction here, not to predicate our MVP, LVP points for the remaining four seasons. I have a hunch there is a chance that Charles Widmore might take over Anthony Cooper as our bottom-ranked LVP by the series end. Well, I wonder about that, uh, because sometimes I go rogue and I'll give very bad people MVP points for doing very bad things very excellently. Um, will Chucky Widmore be able to get a point through those means? I don't know that it's impossible. Well, at least in his introduction, he is a dick. He's a big douche for sure. Yeah, he's awful. Yeah, and I, I think this scene is just so, again, indicative of their relationship. It's a perfect way to sort of drop us into their reality and not go through so much exposition as to who Penny is and what her relationship is to Desmond. Even just the small sign of Widmore referring to Desmond as Hume just by his last name, not even calling him Desmond until the very last second when he's trying to manipulate him. It very much reminds me of someone like Mr. Paik, which I know we're going to make a lot of comparisons between the two in terms of like big corporate daddies. Uh, But basically, it just shows that Widmore has very little regard for Desmond. He's calling him by his last name, which at least indicates to me 
a last name is typically regarded as a family name, right? It it sort of harkens to like the status that Desmond has in society. And as Dem- Desmond's going to tell Libby in a couple of scenes, he basically the issue is that Chucky Witts never had any regard for Desmond pretty much because of where he came from. And so I do think that regarding him with the last name Hume is like a very subtle way for Widmore to poke Desmond by being like, because you are a Hume, because this is where you come from, you absolutely can never see my daughter again. And just to just to throw some money on top of your cowardice, here's a big uh, brief, you know, box full of bills that you can take and run away with. Uh, there, uh, the the line "get in the car" is one of those lines that is on the list of like coming out. And I'm so sorry that I've just said forever. Uh, so I, I love the Charles Woodmore name. There's there's one of, of from mine a little you know box of lines that it will be coming out. So not to be confused with the box of letters, uh, which right. are very neat, 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 uh, neatly filed. Like Charles Woodmore is a douche in this scene, but I guess good on him for organizing the letters so nicely from his daughter to really rub in the point. Yeah, he did Desmond. a good job. He did a good job. Uh, all right, so back on the island, Saeed's going to take Jack for a walk. He says. Uh, all right, we've got the advantage now. It's the boat. We're gonna we're gonna take this boat. I'm gonna take this boat to the to the to the beach on the other side of the island. I'm gonna scout out the numbers and positions and weapons and all of that good stuff that the others have. Then I'll go to another beach nearby and start a signal fi- fire. And you and your team, you come and you meet me at the signal fire, and then we'll all go in together. How's that for a plan? I mean, sounds like a, again a. Pretty good plan, assuming that, again, it's not just a set for the other's production of hillbilly fish-eating people. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that Saeed brings up this idea of fate. Again, we consider him one of the more rationally-minded characters, and maybe it speaks towards Saeed's growing uh, sense of mysticism towards the island, that he, he sort of gives almost a Lockean phrase by saying, fate gave them an answer as to what to do in the form of the boat. And also a great callback to Exodus, and that he's sort of using uh, Danielle Rousseau's life hack as well, and, and making the giant black plume of smoke to signal to Jack where they are. Yeah, but why doesn't he uh, say, let's bring a few more people on the boat <laughs> and hook them up with assault rifles from Sawyer's stash, uh, and I'll take a tact party, and we'll we'll just destroy the others. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely talk about, again, where they leave off the sea plot because that's going to be continued in the Glass Ballerina, but they sort of just say, they found out it was not a village, and then nothing else happened and so we really have no idea like did they get back in the boat did they go through the jungle and like try to meet jack and the party wherever they were i i think saeed for being so you know carefully plotting as he has in many many episodes to the point where he was the season one mvp just barely i think this is a surprisingly short-sighted idea from him it really did seem like he was improvising uh, much more so when he found that boat and was just trying to formulate this plan of how they can use the boat to their advantage. You know, it's just that, like, gin's available. Obviously, he's going to ask for gin. Um, Bernard. And I think Des- he- well, Desmond's uh, chugging the gin, so I think it yeah, might be but you know, They don't know Desmond very well, but they know Bernard is... Uh, they're going to know in a season from now that Bernard's an eagle-eyed sharpshooter. Mm-hmm. Why not test this thing out now? Like, hey, who can shoot a gun? I've got a mission for everybody. Yeah, Especially once, like, Michael and the crew have left. It's like, hey, so by the way, I've got some very upsetting news for everybody. Michael's the mole. Right. Um, no spoilers for season one. That's the thing is that the only thing I could think of is that much like the Michael plan, it's on a need-to-know basis and that Saeed maybe doesn't want to spook the crowd that much. Because I do believe, and maybe this is in a deleted scene, that apparently after the boat arrives, like the gawkers are just 
completely disturbed beyond belief. They have no clue what the hell is going on. So maybe Saeed wants to assuage the camp a little by just taking a couple people on a surreptitious mission. But that being said, depending on what your intention are, especially if your plan is to sort of ambush them from behind and catch them, taking three people, including yourself, really seems short-sighted. Moot point, because obviously they're going to find nothing. But, uh, you know, it's just like maybe bring a couple people with Yeah, and Said also uh, says... Uh, like, who are, who've been read in. Read them in a little Said bit. Said also says, this time they will know that we are coming. It's like, yeah? Okay. Is that the, <laughs> that, is that the point of the plan? <laughs> yeah, you're, you guys don't want the element of surprise? Anyway, whatever. It's totally fine. Uh, there are other people to get uh, dinged up in this episode long before Said Speaking of which... <laughs> Yeah, here comes John Locke. And John Locke's going to come to Mr. Echo, who is so happy to see his friend. Yeah! John Locke, he's like, oh, oh, yes, you've come to push the button with me. And Locke's like, no, actually, I'm here to like tell you like the button can't be pushed anymore, and I'm going to destroy the computer if I can. And he starts like getting into a fight with Mr. Echo. Yeah. And it's Mr. Echo who parrots back at him like, hey, don't tell me what I can't I, do. I, it's like he knows that that's his trigger. Yeah, and phrase. I think if you ever want a confirmation that had Echo stuck around, he would probably become the lock roll. I think that's sort of a, a, the indication, right, between that and him slipping his shoes off last episode when he goes into the hatch, that like he has fully become lock just with hair and an awesome ripped chest along with a, with a ripped shirt. But I, I love the back and forth and the matter-of-factness of Echo where Locke's like, you're not going to push the button. Echo just goes but I am going to push the button. Just like very sure of himself. And Echo, Locke really tries to get one over on Echo. He tries to use Echo's own Jesus stick against him. Uh, and, yeah. But Echo is able to strong arm Locke back and push him out while Locke moans about being, we're puppets! Yeah, see, there he goes! And on the week that uh, we dropped the Avengers Age of Ultron podcast here on Post, There are no recaps, strings on me! The Pinocchio obsessies in the in the group here between Ultron and Locke were puppets, puppets on strings, mountain mice in a maze with no cheese. You know, it's just <laughs> he's so hokey, but I and love it. I love it. lots uh, of Echo sassiness here because after that whole puppets on strings comparison, he goes, "As long as we push it, we'll never be free." And Echo just says, "Well, you're free now, John. You're free." And just now, pushes John. him out the door and <laughs> yeah. walks him out, Fred Flintstone style. Very, very, very funny. Um, all right, so Jack and the crew are getting ready to roll out. He's hooking everybody up with guns, except Hurley doesn't want one. Kate's trying to be like, hey, doesn't something feel off? Because, uh, like, remember how I told you about the fake beards and stuff? Like, what if they're just uh, trying to get us, like, off guard? And Michael's like, nope. Nope, they're hillbillies. Uh, the yeah, others are uh, hillbillies. Why do they focus so much on the word hillbilly? Like, no, they are hillbillies. That's indeed what they are. And I also love, I guess, the uh, the the unrealistic stereotype that hillbillies just eat fish like i yeah they live in huts and they eat fish you know classic hillbillies. like classic hillbillies that's what i'm pretty sure the beverly hillbillies the reason why they went out to california is because that's where the fish is plentiful and that's where they can yeah. they can eat it inside their mansion may as well go to the source exactly yeah, sure. uh i also think there's some interesting stuff here with we like you said hurley basically says i don't want the gun because if i do i'll kill someone and sawyer basically replies like isn't this isn't that the point and again, Sawyer yeah. showing like, hey, I'm basically, uh, I'm fine coming because I want revenge on Zeke. I want revenge on the guy that took the boy, and even though he won't get it here, which, again, Michael's totally fine with because he has various, uh, you know, the rationale that he used for Hurley and didn't use for Saeed is, is coming back from a certain perspective. I also believe uh, uh, the hostiles are going to be referenced here as well. 
Uh, yeah, we're going to get that in this conversation between Saeed and Desmond, where uh, for the first time, Desmond says, ah, you're off to see the hostiles. Uh, I believe that is the first mention of the hostiles that I can recall. Right, and I guess, you know, this was sort of had some confusing uh, chatter on the internet over the course of the offseason, because it's like, are the hostiles different from the others? Uh, it seems, as we find out through history, it sort of ends up becoming one and the same from a certain perspective, that the hostiles and what's left of the Dharma Initiative essentially merge into one. But I know a lot of people were wondering, like, who are the hostiles? Are these different from the people that, quote-unquote, Henry Gale is part of? And it makes sense for Desmond to use this naming convention, because that's what Inman have been talking about, probably, right? Like, don't go out there. There's diseases, and there's the hostiles. Those are the main two things that if you just stay inside, you get to avoid. Yeah, so uh, steer queer of those hostiles. Probably good advice. Uh, hey, uh, great to see Desmond at a Starbucks after all of this Starbucks Yeah, I'm surprised Mr. Echo didn't come out as the manager. <laughs> Flashback time, and Desmond is in America. He's at a coffee shop. I think it's called Dina's in the background. Uh, but I did wonder, hey, did Mr. Echo build this one? Uh, and he says, I want a, a coffee, whatever's got the most caffeine. Uh, wow, it's just he really needs to wake up. That jet lag is hitting him Yeah, hard. I mean, I guess if, if he took um, a red eye from the UK, I guess that would make sense. He crossed several different yeah, time zones. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a lot going on. He doesn't have the American cash to buy the coffee, but don't worry. Uh, his sugar mama Libby is here, who is going to just be hooking oh, him up yeah. left and right. I always thought Libby with this weird sort of like power 80s hair always reminded me of Joan Cusack's character from Adam's Family Values. Sure. The, the, yeah, the Black the Widow. The Black Widow, yeah, the one that tries to uh, get Uncle Fester as her sugar daddy to a certain extent. Like, just yeah. that like power bob with the, a little wisp of bangs on top. I don't know if they just plop the same wig onto Cynthia Watro. But it appears that Libby was trying something out a few years before she ends up on the it's island. Ve- it's it's very funny you should say that because I was going to say she actually, I think, Libby, my new theory, uh, is no longer time traveling. Dave marrying Libby, uh, but that Libby is from the same program that Black Widow from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm, interesting. Uh, and, and that's why she's just like constantly infiltrating people and she's got all this different spy looks to her. Uh, but yeah, it's strange. You know, she's, she's rocking this very different hairstyle. It feels very deliberate. This feels like this is still part of some greater Libby plan that the writers have that they never end up implementing. Whatever. Uh, but this is the moment. We've been talking about this moment for a long time, right? Where like Libby and, and Desmond, they're going to sit down he he needs uh forty two thousand dollars. He needs a boat in order to get into this solar yeah, race around. That the you could tell is so well done because the font for the race is in papyrus, so you know it's just very well organized from the Winmore Corporation's perspective. Yeah, so he he needs to win this race because uh, it's the the man who has prevented him from being with the love of his life. The only problem is she, he doesn't have a boat. But good news. Somebody does have a boat, and because there's a dead body on it, she's really eager to pass it off. Let's listen to the offer. And what's a forty-two grand for? It's a wee bit complicated. As of yet, I don't actually have a boat. Sorry, did I say something wrong? I have a boat. It was my husband's, but he got sick. He wanted to sail to the Mediterranean.
He passed away about a month ago. I'm sorry. I want you to have it. But you have to. He'd want you to. What was your husband's name? David. And what did he name his boat? Elizabeth. He named it after me. And thank you, Elizabeth. And I shall win this race for love. I would do anything for love. I will sail this boat. So what was the plan for the boat race again? Like they were supposed to begin in L.A. and I end in L.A. Or did they, was it all around the world? Was it halfway around the world? It's all around the world. Didn't you hear what he said? So yeah, you got to, you got to, you go and then you come back. I suppose so. But uh, I mean, again, this is sort of Desmond uh, out of desperation trying to really show up. I don't know how much Charles Wilmer would respond to like, well, you won my boat race. So I guess you win my daughter's heart. You know, that sounds very, I don't know, like Phineas Fogg, like 18th century novel. Maybe that's the, the race around the world of it all. Speaking from Libby's perspective, Josh, if we are indeed following your theory here, do you think like this is a moment where Libby has that sort of come to, to Jacob moment of, okay, now I realize this is one of those things I need to do to get everything into the right places to give Desmond my boat so that he ends up on the island? Yeah, maybe she, like, was on the same plane as him, coincidentally, and, like, stalked him to the Starbucks because she had this vague notion of recognizing him, and then finds out that that's Desmond. She's like, oh, that's Desmond. I've heard about that guy. Because they didn't meet, obviously. Because uh, once Desmond's off the island, God willing, he never comes back. Uh Please, I hope that this is their first meeting. Uh, and then Libby uh, sits down and talks to him and realizes that, and he says, I need the boat. And she's crying, realizing, A... Uh, that she's the reason Desmond gets to the island. She has to give him the boat. And B, also that she's finally got somebody to offload her, uh, you know, month-long rotting husband right. who's on, who's, you know, buried in the bowels of the ship uh, to take care of that for her. Uh, so it's uh, tears for two. Do you think after this scene cut, then Libby was like, oh, by the way, there's something you should know that's on board that boat. Hey, maybe Desmond took the, the fetching shirt off of Dave's corpse in the galley. It's possible. That makes sense. It kind of looks similar. But unfortunately, uh, Desmond will say to Libby, and we will say to Libby, due to, you know, the exit of Cynthia Watros, bye-bye. <laughs> for a while, for a while. I don't think we see Liz- Libby again until season four and meet Kevin Johnson, and then we don't see her again until uh, the, the final season uh, in the Sideways universe. So uh, we'll just have to take this as canon, yeah. right? I mean, what what other option do we yeah, have? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, time-traveling Libby, I think we just have to... We have to accept it. In I our think hearts. so. I think Libby is sort of like the person putting these puppets on strings to make sure that yeah. certain people get to the island in certain ways, or that certain events on the island happen in the way that they do. 
I, I think it makes sense. Because, again, if Desmond's not there, the plane doesn't crash. If the plane doesn't crash, Hurley's not going to be there. Hurley doesn't become king of the island, and Libby does not, you know, serve by his side as well. So, really, this has to be the instigating incident here, and it all depends on the boat named after her. Yeah, so it all it's all coming together. Uh, back on the island, Said is going to be uh, asking Sun if she can uh, lend him gin. Can I borrow gin? I need a sailor. Uh, and so Sun translates the message to Jin, and Jin's like, "No, what? Not not happening. I'm never leaving you again." She's like, "Well, don't worry. You're not. Going don't worry. To. We'll wait for the rest of the series for that to happen multiple times." Uh, good on good on yeah. Said again. We might be talking about how the strategy does not necessarily hold water, but good on Said for at least pitching the idea to Jin as quote unquote helping Michael. Because again, he doesn't want to reveal that Michael has been compromised, but he also knows that Jin is Michael's BFF at this point. So he's really skewing his way of, no, 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 this is really going to help Michael. You really want to do him a solid by hopping on the boat with me. Yeah, I guess maybe people wouldn't just take Saeed at his word if he's like, hey, Michael turned. Jin's going to be like, no way. Yeah, did you see the ovation that Michael got when he showed up on the I beach know, last they episode? Love him. They it's love Michael! Him. They would be. Yeah, they can't win the people's hearts. I take back everything that I've ever said about anything. Um, all right, the A squad's in the jungle. Uh, Sawyer nearly picks up a doll, one of the yeah, Russo so traps. Yeah, so this is pretty much confirmed, right, that Russo went to, like, the smuggled dolls in the caves and has just been setting them up using said dolls all around the jungle. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I don't know. I feel like you, you got like, it's like it's like, a, it's like a video game when you pick up, like, a supplies of, like, a, like one thing and now you have, like, a supply of eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like set up eight of her doll trap mines. But I, I, feel, uh, I don't know. I feel like you have to diversify a little bit because otherwise, as Kate does here, like if her calling card is a doll, you pretty much avoid the dolls after the first time you get caught in that net. Yeah, but I think her her hope is uh, she catches you in the net. You're not leaving unless she says. That's very true. It yeah. hopes that people are as poor shots as Kate is. Yeah, so like, you don't have time to consider the next doll because you've been caught in a net, mm. uh, which is, it yeah, does not mean what Sawyer thought. Sawyer's sort of like, it's the only doll you'll need to see because after that, you'll just be staring at me the whole time as I tie you up in my bunker before I blew it up. He and Kate are about to have an awkward conversation and it's mercifully interrupted by the Hurley bird! It's a bird that says Hurley. Yeah, so here's the thing. Again, I, I am lukewarm at best on a lot of these jungle scenes. I never understood why we needed to bring the Hurley bird back again. I guess just to underline how it's a weird thing that was a thing people picked up from Exodus. Yeah. Um Yeah. So they got a they 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 have a Hurley bird on the show and they can't leave it unanswered. Um if you want to think about like what is it beyond just an easter egg? You know, maybe it's it's showing us that Hurley is going to have a much more important role in things in the grand scheme. That this is how connected to the island he is. The freaking birds worship him and say his name. Um, I, the obviously the birds are all time travelers, right? Like these birds are from the future. They've been sent back in time. They're like Hurley. Oh my god, it's Hurley. Yeah, or, it's my best. Or friend these Hurley. are like people that have warged into the birds. That's sort of like Bran Stark. Sort of have the mm-hmm. being able to see both backwards and forwards that they know what's to come, and so it has yeah. gained the capacity to call out Hurley by his name. Yeah, I love Hurley's line of "Did that bird just say my name?" And Sawyer saying, "Yeah, it did." Right before it crapped. Yeah, poor Hurley, like, saying weird (laughs) true things are happening. Everyone being like, oh, yeah, there's the polar bear on roller skates. No, it crapped gold. Poor Hurley is just getting disbelieved at every turn. It's just so funny. It's hysterical. Um, Michael tried to murder the bird. (laughs) Just unloaded a clip. 
into it, and it's revealed that he uh, he didn't have anything in the gun. Jack terribly tries to play cool, but being like, oh, I guess the gun wasn't loaded. Sorry about that, buddy. Yeah, wanna hand me the mag? Uh, so he hands him the mag, but Michael knows something's wrong. This is not going right. Um, Charlie's going through a walk through the jungle, and he's going to happen upon John Locke, who's just crying Ugh, all by himself. It's so he's pitiful. He's like thrown himself over a branch, like he's a, he's like a fourteen year old girl, just like weeping. And this is an, an expression of emotion from John Locke that we very rarely see, especially in season two. From like we've seen a lot of anger, but we haven't seen a lot of sadness and depression. And of all the characters, like, I don't know, I think it's because of what they've gone through, especially in Fire Plus Water, but Charlie feels pretty high and mighty in this scene at watching the great John Locke being inconsolable. I feel like we get a weepy John Locke in almost every season, except for maybe next season. Mm. So I think that this is like, we're in the final stretch of weepy John Locke for a little while. Yeah, so I guess he's... Uh, otherwise, he's going to really be like on a, a man on a mission. Exactly. Like, he's he's more adamant, I think especially after this moment, which has sort of just renewed his faith in the island. Uh, he's going to be more driven than just, like, completely despondent. You know, I, I think really we'll see him come to pieces, obviously, in Jeremy Bentham and, and some other stuff. But this is the last time I think that he's really shaken to his core, fundamentally and of course of course of all people to walk in on that it's one the one and only charlie, charlie. Pace, who is really like being informative but also like pretty poking right but yeah but you know Locke did punch him in the oh, face totally. publicly yeah but he also did you steal know? a baby too so it's not like he did steal a baby he did steal a baby i guess you're right i guess you're right yeah so like i, <laughs> I mean admittedly charlie is he, again like he has his own character reasoning for doing it but looking at these two guys who as we talked about in fire plus water were both sort of in the wrong to have Charlie try to assume the, the higher ground here and sort of, you know, mock him by being like, oh, Desmond was able to do that all by himself. At least he does reveal to Locke that Desmond is back, which gives Locke the idea for his grandmaster plan of how he's going to get past Echo and his Jesus stick. Yeah, Charlie is very satisfied as he's uh, just dunked on John Locke over and over and over again. Meanwhile, at the beach... Uh, son is going to tell Syed, so hey, uh, Jin's in, so am I. And Syed's like, I don't want this to be awkward, but I didn't invite you. And Syed's like, that's fine. I'm still coming. You need three, two, two, two extra heads are better than the one. And who's going to translate for my husband if it's not me? So you're getting both I of mean, us. This was an interesting note from Ben Martell, the Ben behind the curtain, who notes that everybody who's along for the Michael crew is everybody who's going to survive the submarine disaster. That's Jack, mm-hmm. Kate, Sawyer, and Hurley. And everybody on this Saeed expedition, Saeed, Sun, and Jin, will be the crew that dies. Oh, interesting. So maybe Live Together Die Alone has more DNA for yeah. future episodes than we think. That being said, again, we talked about the, the choice in crew members, and I love Sun's adamancy to step up here, especially in response to, you know, Exodus, where essentially it was like her, Claire, and Shannon just sitting around the caves, right? I'm happy that she stepped up here and gets more involved in missions. That being said, she is pregnant, <laughs> Why are they letting her do this when nah, nah, it's not a secret? Everyone on the island literally knows that Sun is pregnant. Why, if you don't let, if you let season one Claire not participate in this stuff, like surely you can't let, especially from Jin's perspective, let season two Sun get involved when she could possibly put Gion's life at stake by getting involved in this. Yeah, um, but she's awesome. <laughs> 
and she's going to be the one who kills someone of this crew, right? You know, so it turns out it's a good thing that she's on board. Yeah, I suppose so. I just, I, I'm glad that things went the way they did in a myriad of it's ways. A, it's, in some ways, it's a bad thing that she's on board because it means we're going to get the glass ballerina in a couple of episodes, which is one of, one of my least faves. Um, but uh, yeah, fair points, I suppose. Um, but she's going, she's on the trip. Uh, why not, you know? What else are you doing? It's another day on the island. There's a boat. Why wouldn't you get on the boat? So she's going on the boat with the crew. Uh, do, you, do you think um, she called? Yeah, when, and when she said boat at the end of three minutes, that she was like calling dibs, and that's why they let her on. Yeah, maybe. Like, it's maybe, like shotgun. Yeah, shot, like shotgun. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, Desmond's gonna be like, yeah, that injector, Claire, that you're uh, you're gonna shoot up uh, your your son with. You don't need to do that. I did that every day for nine years. There's really no reason. Yeah, and and Charlie's like, wait a minute, I stuck myself with that thing just to prove myself to Claire, and nothing. Yeah, got him killed because it connected him to exactly. Desmond. So Aaron, Aaron um, was very close to becoming part of that chain, but Desmond was able to prevent it. Uh, Desmond's like, hey, where's the dad? And Claire's like, yeah, he's not here. He left. And Desmond's like, oh, maybe that was a good thing. Maybe he did it because he knew it was the best thing. And Claire's like, how dare you? Yeah, Desmond's defending Thomas is a rare lapse in judgment in him in this episode. Yeah, not great. Not great. Um, but I guess it's like, you know, it's him projecting the way in which he thinks that he's defending Penny uh, in the past, that he has some honor to reclaim so he can't just allow him and Penny to be happy he has to go and do some like super macho thing uh, and win his honor back and win Penny's affection back. So maybe he's still of that deluded mindset or maybe he's just like in a period of uh, significant self-loathing mm. from all of the drank and, and the thinking that there is no world beyond this yeah. island any further. I think Desmond's in full troll mode at this point. Like he doesn't know these people. I think he's just going around like pushing everybody's buttons by being like he's on that troll world tour. Exactly. And he's sort of like, hey, uh, your baby doesn't need that. And BT dubs, uh, the person ran away because he didn't want to be with you. Like, he's just really trying to, to get everyone going so that they sink to the mood that he's in right now of F the world, let's get drunk. Uh, let's, uh, let's go back in time. Uh, let's flash back to uh, a scene, the other side of a scene from the very first episode of this season. It's the stadium. Desmond's about to do the tour de stade mm-hmm. because he's a badass like With Jack. his polo shirt and the shorts his... that he was wearing underneath his running pants as well, which is an interesting choice. That's, I believe that happens. I am not a runner, uh, so I, I don't know, but I, I, I am meant to understand that that is a thing. Uh, so he's going to rip off those tearaway pants and he's going to have his shorts on underneath. And here's Penny just happening to be in Los Angeles uh, to, to catch a, a few minutes with her buddy Desmond. How did you find me? Landlord at your flat told me you ran here every day. How did day. you find me? I have a lot of money, Desmond. With enough money and determination, you can find anyone. Did you read your beloved book? The one you were saving? Not yet. I thought you might have read it while you were away. I was in prison. Not away. Why didn't you write to me? When are you getting married, Pen? set a date yet I'll be back in a year what if you were back right now 
I'm going to win this race, Ben. His race. And in a year, I'll be back. What are you running from? I have to get my honor back. And that's what I'm running to. Mike, there are obviously so many things that Desmond Hume and I have in common and so many ways in which we're essentially the same guy. A fundamental way in which we are not the same person is if, like, Penny comes to me and goes, what if you could just come back right now and you didn't have to do all of that additional stuff? I'd be like, cool. Okie dokie. Yes. Yes. Um, But that's, you know, that's where Desmond and I part ways. Yeah. Uh, Desmond's got to get his honor back and I'm just fine with a free ride. And I guess it's just because it's not necessarily, you know, the idea of being with Penny. It's that being with Penny essentially means that Charles Winmore is going to be part of your life in some capacity, no matter what. And he feels like this is the way that he can finally secure that from some perspective. And so he really wants to nail the point home of like, I already have Penny in a manner of speaking, but I need to show that, like, I love her and that I'm so honor-bound that I will do this. Because, again, you know, as someone who just went AWOL, apparently, uh, to go see Penny, he does not have a shred of honor to his name from like, a more objective standpoint. And so I guess this sort of proves that. So, yeah, I, I do not have as much of a repository of random line readings as you do, Josh. But I always remember being particularly unintentionally tickled by Henry and Cusick's when you get to marry Penn, and that's one of the ones that like I always have randomly thrown out, especially when I see Desmond. Again, it's it's a it's a breaking point for Desmond as a character, but just for some reason, the phrasing of "when you get to marry Penn" is something that always has stuck up, out to me about the character. Yeah, one for me is in a scene that's coming up right coming after this up. when we come out of the flashback. Uh, coming out of the flashback and Desmond's still drinking and Locke shows up and goes, so what did one snowman say to the other snowman? And Desmond gives the great line read, smells like carrots. And, uh, and, then, he, and, then, he, and then he follows it up with another great line reading when, when Locke goes, hello, Desmond. He goes, hello yourself, box man. Like, yeah, it's a it's a real it's a really great scene. I, I love this scene. Uh, not to, you know, we're, we're yada yadaing past. Yeah, no, no. Penny's on the show. Yeah. Penny's, on, Penny's the show. on the show. Penny's and on the it's show. A, it's a, Penny's on the show. It's a really interesting debut for her. It's going to cut, you know, it's really going to link up to the last scene where, you know, when she talks about how with enough money and determination, you can find anyone. And not only is that going to hint towards, obviously, her perennial search to find Desmond, it's also going to hint towards, like, that That might as well be the Widmore family motto, because we're going to find out in a couple of seasons Charles Widmore's quest to find the island as well. Uh, but yeah, this is such a, a great scene. I will ask you, Josh, because I think it's very subjective to say what the best romance on the show is. But is are Desmond and Penny the most pure romance on the it's show? It's not. It's it's not competitive. Uh, other than like the only the only other one is Jin and Son. Mm. It's Jin and Son, and it's Desmond and Penny. And I I don't think that they're. I guess people will will at me and be like, justice for James and Juliet. Uh, and their storyline is excellent. Don't get me wrong, but like what is being expressed 
through the star-crossed love story of uh, of Desmond and Penny uh, and the soulmate quality of that and the constant being in the conversation for not just best episode of Lost, but one of the best episodes in television history. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know how, other other than Jin and Son, I don't, I don't think that I personally could say that there is one that tops Desmond and Penny. It's just iconic yeah. to the show. I think there are others that obviously get more attention. Like Jack and Kate is obviously the romance that gets the most focus from moment one all the way to the final scene. is the final episode when they end up kissing on the rocks. I wonder if what Desmond and Penny benefit from is it's not like it has its own... It doesn't have a rocky road. But I feel like unlike some of the other couples, there's less complications Right, like Jin and Son had the whole cheating thing and being separated myriad times. The whole quartet of Jack and Cade and Sawyer and Juliet will sort of juggle partners throughout. So because this is sort of the lesser uh, focused romance, it makes those scenes much more concise and much more heartfelt and therefore like much cleaner than I think a lot of the messiness that can uh, very lovingly come out of those couples, but still come across as less pure than what Desmond or Pe- and Penny are, which are essentially, you know, the quantum entanglement of all. They're definitely soulmates, and they might be in a bit of a conflict now, but again, it doesn't really compare to some of the other stuff these couples go through throughout the show. Yeah, I I just, there's, there is, a, they are in an elite tier. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a class of their own. Much like Desmond is somebody who is unstuck in time, has a unique relationship with electromagnetism, Desmond has a unique relationship uh, with, with Penny that just transcends the show. And I think, like, their quantum entanglement is the, is the defining one that unlocks the, the last part of the final season mm-hmm. that is used to, to hinge the entirety of the show. Um, there's just, like, this iconic epicness to their love story that, um, for me, can't be touched by anyone other than Jin and Son. And I think that the show... Uh, makes that one a little bit harder to swallow with its ending. I think it's more of a heartbreaker, and there's like debate about whether or not it should have ended that way. There's just not a lot of debate about Desmond and Penny. Yeah, I think it's not just like pure; it's also like clean. Yeah, it's you know, very it's like clean. It, it, they landed it very neatly. Uh, they got it. They figured yeah, that. Yeah, that's one the out. thing. Is like I think. I mean, also I think people would have like gone to war if Desmond yeah, did not end up like, with Penny in the end. Like, everyone would have unilaterally been like, this show sucks if they screwed up yeah, Desmond. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the thing as well, is that the Desmond-Penny dynamic has is the carrot that is really going to supplement not, the, like, all of seasons three and four, but some key episodes, right? Like, Penny is going to show up at the end of season three, and there's that beautifully heartbreaking moment of, like, Desmond's right outside the door, and he can't talk with Penny. Season four is going to have the constant, and then that really makes that moment in There's No Place Like Home when Penny finally sees Desmond just so heartlifting because this is like his odyssey to a certain perspective, right? Desmond is Dorothy in that he just wants to go home. He just wants to get back here. But no matter how many hot air balloons he runs into, he always finds himself going back to this weird perverted Oz. And to have that show up at the end and have him finally find his happy ending after undergoing so so much torture and pain over the course of many years. It's it's such a poetic and happy ending for a show that has often deprived characters of that. Tell me more about the weird perverted Oz. <laughs> well, listen, you are the more expert on that than I am, and maybe I could ask Harold yeah. Perrineau in AAA about that. <laughs> um, speaking of carrots, let's get into Desmond and Locke. Uh, it smells like carrots. Hello, Boxman. They're drinking up. 
and Locke is going to read Desmond in on everything with the pearl and his new theory that what was happening in the hatch is not real. If you don't believe me, let's go for movie night. I'll make popcorn. He shows him the pearl. Yeah, and this is Desmond wants nothing to do with it. And this is super interesting, too, because I believe this is one of the only times, maybe they did this a couple times in season one. I can't remember off the top of my head where they do like. I wouldn't say a simultaneous flashback, but it's a different type of flashback where they showed footage from huh, as Locke is describing what happened. So it's almost like a previous, a silent previously on Lost within the episode. I don't necessarily think we need the reminder, especially because it was a couple of weeks ago. But I guess if they wanted to hammer home like the image of the Pearl tape, that Locke showing it to Desmond here will not you know, raise a question mark on a lot of people's minds. Either way, he's going to say it's sober up. Get some sleep tonight. Tomorrow we're gonna we're gonna see what happens if we don't push the button. So they're they're men on a mission at this point. Um, Sawyer and Hurley. Uh, Sawyer's gonna offer Hurley a Dharma Nutra bar. Hurley doesn't want it. Sawyer's surprised. Come on, uh, give it that. a rest, Sawyer. Give it up. Hurley, give it up. He, give it a rest. Lost. He, he yelled at you this last time. Then he tackled you and beat your ass for making fun of his weight. Why are you inviting him to kick your ass more, Sawyer? What is what's your deal, dude? He just he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, Michael's in the jungle. This is the scene we talked about. I think that this interaction with Michael and Jack coming out to like kind of check in on him. I think part of it is like Jack still can't like fully believe what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he and Michael are relatively tight, and this is happening, and it's just like it's it's kind of unbelievable for him in the way that it's unbelievable for the viewer, or would be if we hadn't gotten all of the context that we've gotten from three minutes up to this point. Um, but this is where Jack is going to say to Michael, live together, die alone, man. Um, I think we've already talked yeah. through uh, the interpretation of that, uh, that like Michael broke the rule. There was one rule. We had one rule. Our society has one law. Live together, die alone. You broke it. Do we think that Michael's sort of reaction in this scene, is this another like uh, him, you know, like he did last episode, retching or just feeling physically uncomfortable because of the guilt? Uh, is it a manner of him just like, breathing through the physical pain that he got that he shot himself in the shoulder at point blank range a couple of days ago or is this just more of a physical manifestation of like wow we're actually getting closer to this happening and i'm feeling really bad that i am selling these people all of it all of it all of it i think all of that i think all of that i think it's like he's selling them out he's also probably we haven't really remarked on the fact that like dude shot himself that that was some serious dedication to the bit you know that is that is much yeah, more and, significant and, and, than Ben self owning on the on the in the pantry. And he saw firsthand like the pain that he saw Sawyer rip a bullet out of his shoulder with his bare hands. He watched Sawyer, Sawyer's shoulder essentially get gangrenous over several days. Like he knows the pain he is going to go through, and he put his body on the line for his son. So that again, if last episode did not show the limit, the extent of Michael's dedication to getting Walt back, I think that is a nice reminder of it. And let's not let the symbolism of Sawyer having been nursing uh, a bullet wound to the shoulder at the start of the season and Michael having a lot of contempt for Sawyer as being just like this terrible guy who's so selfish. Mm. Uh, Let's not let that escape uh, from the fact that Michael is now the guy who is nursing the bullet wound to the shoulder. I think that that's that's a really compelling thing to put. uh, Yeah, I really like that parallel. This idea that, like, I guess if you get shot in the shoulder, you're a bad person. That's the mark. (laughs) That's the mark. Your brain happens. You've been branded. Uh, all right, four toed statue. Uh, that, this is Sun a thing. And Jin and Saeed are sailing, and look at that. It's the four toed statue. Uh, and it has so much. That's a thing you can't see the same way once you know what it is, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's Jacob's house. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing that the Black Rock will destroy several centuries ago with Richard Alpert you on know, board. Do you, 
Do you think that, like, as, like, Sun and, uh, as Saeed and the Quans are, like, looking out, Jacob's, like, peeking out through a toenail, <laughs> being like, hi, candidates! Yeah, like, get get off my lawn! I feel like Jacob's actually more like, irascible. He's like, come on, come over! Come over, I'm I'm weaving! You want to weave with me? We can weave! No, I still feel like Jacob is sort of still in, like, his hidey hole mode, right? Especially since they haven't gotten involved with Ben yet. They're like, oh, I still want to be sort of, like, you know, the invisible hand uh, guiding these candidates right now. So, like, they can't see me. But, yeah, this is... One of those mysteries that we're going to put a pin in, much like the Hurley Bird, and not talk about for a long, long time, or at least a couple of seasons from now. That's the, that's the other thing with this finale, I feel like maybe above Exodus, is that because I think Lost is now looking ahead more towards its long game, it is setting up bigger mysteries, whereas Exodus, I feel like, does a good job of addressing its mysteries in season two, episodes one and two. Uh, this will instead set up a couple things that are just going to be hanging over everybody's head like a watching bird until, you know, later seasons or even, in one case, the epilogue to provide the answer as to what they are. Yeah, they're doing some mythology building, especially as they're going to close up shop on the hatch for good pretty soon. So um, I think I think it makes sense that that's what they're doing. Fortune Statue, uh, nice to have you on the board. Um, sorry about what happened to the rest of you. Yeah. Do we, do we think we needed Saeed to, like, d- remind us verbally that the statue only has four toes? Do we need any of this? I don't I know. I mean, that's a very good um, question do as I, well. Do I love it? I do. I do. I love it very much. Uh, I think him saying, oh, it disturbs me that this 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 statue has four toes. Uh, I just love that that's a detail that sticks out for Saeed. Because Saeed's a details guy. He's going to notice that. It just shows that Saeed was not able to watch The Simpsons when he was growing up. Because those are four-digit people all over the place. So he wasn't able to watch Say Anything. He wasn't able to watch The Simpsons. No wonder he turned it out the way that he did. Um, Mr. Echo is alone. He's carving in his stick. And then the lights are going off and on. And there's like this electric hum that sounds like the start of Man, I Feel Like a Woman. (laughs) uh, And it's Desmond is playing around with Uh, wires. What if if they put Shania Twain on vinyl to distract Mr. Echo? (laughs) (laughs) Let's go, Mr. Echo. Uh, But he's going to go out and he's like going to go and look around to see what's going on. And he uh, is going to get locked out by Locke. And Desmond, and he's going to try and pull the lock yeah. trick, essentially, of, like, stick a crowbar underneath the uh, the door, except it's his scripture stick, and Locke's going to yoink it right out of Echo's And hand. I love this, because, again, this is another great symbolism of the reversal of roles uh, in terms of the positions that they have, where Echo was the one that was committed to the computer, and now Locke is the more cautious person. He has literally taken the Echo symbol, and now he is holding on to it. Yeah, he's got it. He's got it. Uh, so Desmond and Locke are now inside the hatch. They're by the computer. Now all they got to do is wait. Um, and all we got to do is watch more flashbacks as we're going to see Desmond's sailboat just getting pounded by the, by the waves of the ocean. And he's going to wash under the island. We're going to get a, a, one of a, a couple of like weird little, uh, slow-mo yeah, montage it's, scenes. It's like, it's like the cousin of that weird montage at the end of the other 48 days where we like, see flashes of people but they're also moving in kind of stilted motion so i guess it's to symbolize like delirium in a certain extent yeah maybe Uh, i think that that makes sense uh hey look kelvin inman uh it's him that's the guy i'm inman Kelvin Inman. <laughs> yeah, and he uh he hates the he hates our mutual friend. Apparently he like yeets that book as soon as he finds it on, on Desmond's stash. 
And, yeah, he's like, you. And he he looks at him and asks, are you him? And he is crestfallen when he realizes that he isn't because he thought he'd finally get relieved of his duty when indeed he just found yeah, a partner. It's not. This guy doesn't know about the carrots yet. Um, I was watching this episode with my wife, who is a huge fan of the Shawshank Redemption that Clancy Brown uh, plays a pivotal role in, uh, Clancy Brown being Kelvin Inman, mm-hmm. of course. And Emily Fox's one comment that she made out loud while I thought she wasn't paying any attention to Lost was, ah, yeah, if you've let so much as a mouse fart, uh, which is uh, one of the lines that Clancy Brown says in the Shawshank Redemption. And then Emily said, I hope you say that on your podcast. Uh, And I was typing that out into my notes uh, to remember that I would say it on the podcast. And then as I was doing that, she was apparently looking over my shoulder because she also said, thank you for taking notes. Which I uh, also. It's something you transcribe this entire thing and just are reading it verbatim from your notes. Um, the uh, uh, not terribly long ago, a few weeks ago, uh, as we were falling asleep, Emily Fox was saying amazing things uh, that I just uh, uh, transcribed in the moment, and it was basically poetry. Uh, and so I transcribed what she was saying and broke it up into like poetry style. Uh, and I have that on a text, uh, a text thread somewhere. It's too hard to, to unbury right now. But there's like ap- absolute gold in there. Uh, we, could, we could sell a book of Emily Fox poetry very easily. Mm, interesting. Well, uh, I don't know if this, the poetry would be just repeating the numbers over and over again, which I guess is poetry in motion in its own way. As Kelvin is in motion with his little sliding chair that Desmond will take uh, you know, precedent from. I, I also love the choice to have Inman sort of like always having his hazmat suit on. Like he never fully took it off when he was carrying over Desmond. I think it's a symbol of how like he always has one foot out the door when he is sort of putting Desmond under his wing for these couple of years that he's like, oh, this guy had a boat. I'm looking to, to get off the island finally, you know, become AWOL from the Dharma Initiative. And so he always essentially is ready to go out into the world to the point where his hazmat suit is always halfway on. Uh, yeah, uh, he's, he's always ready to go. You know, he's, he's on outdoor duty. And now that he sees that boat, he's probably like, ah, my ticket. Yeah, and also I, I think we now see, now that we actually see in the moment in Min's reading of saving the world, that I think Desmond took things too much at face value when he, re- when he uh, reflected the story back onto Locke. It sounded much more hopeful and sincere, whereas he is much more crusty and despondent, much like Desmond is at the beginning of this episode about the idea of saving the world. Yeah. Um, so he gives him, he gives him like the injector too. He tells him a little bit about Rosinski and the edits he made. And he doesn't really want to talk about Rosinski, but we'll talk about Rosinski pretty soon. Um, back in the, in the real time, Desmond's like, so who's this guy who was in here before? Locke goes, oh, that's Mr. Echo. And Desmond says, well, why does Mr. Echo carry a stick that's covered in scripture? Locke goes, oh, that's because Mr. Echo's a priest. And Desmond's like, we locked out Ooh, uh, I should tell you, I was a monk. This is not good. Yeah, that's bad. That's not nothing. That's not nothing. Yeah, but, but Locke should be like, oh, no, I can tell you all about this guy. Like, he is far from clean. It's 99 minutes on the clock but uh, a when one. that scene is taking. Uh, 99 minutes on the clock as that's going on. And it's uh, 90 minutes remaining by the time Echo goes to Charlie, who's playing guitar. Uh, and Echo's going to run to Charlie and say, hey... So, Locke has commandeered the computer. Uh, I know I was a dick before about asking you to go and get my stuff, and you didn't want to do that, and I know you're mad at me, but if you don't join me right now and get Locke out of there, and he doesn't push the button, then an hour and a half from now, everybody going to die. Mm-hmm. And that means you can't premiere your hit new song, uh, How They Got the Hatch Door Open. Yeah. Uh, 
Which I guess would be sort of like the B-side of Monster Eats the Pilot in Charlie's self-titled album. Add it to the list, I think, could be fun. Yeah, I mean, we're um, going to find out how they got the hatch door open. Uh, well, it's going to get open very soon, in a manner of speaking, but Echo will find out, I guess, how they got the hatch door open soon. We'll, and we'll talk about that moment as well. Uh, so that's going on. So Charlie's like, all right, uh, I don't want everybody to die in 90 minutes. Yeah, uh, wait a minute, ulti- everyone, that's Claire. I'll help you. Yeah, yeah. so that's going to happen Meanwhile, Sawyer and everybody, they're on the, the road, and Sawyer's asking about the others. Like, you know what my theory about the other is? They're aliens. Oh, my God. Can somebody please Photoshop the big-haired guy from Ancient Aliens with Sawyer saying aliens now? Aliens, man. Uh, funny, because uh, in season three's finale, when Sawyer and Juliet are going to be walking together, uh, and he's going to be asking, what did we build the runway for? Uh, she says, for the aliens, of course. Uh, which I assume is because one of the others who's peeping in the forest behind Sawyer and the crew right now makes it out, survives, probably reports back what he was <laughs> overhearing. It's like, yeah, right before they started shooting at us, they were starting to theorize that we're aliens. And something called... Juliet probably heard that. And also, we should invest in something called plastetic. I don't know if it's real, but he was talking about that, too. Yeah, very fun. Um, Kate's like, hey, by the way, we're being followed, and I'm going to start shooting them. And these others are terrible at not being noticed. Like, when we cut to the two of them, they're very visibly skulking through the trees. Like, I think anyone who has eyes would be able to notice them if they're looking hard enough. Well, only Kate did. You know, nobody else on the crew did, and Kate's good at this stuff. So I'm I'm going to put this as a point in Kate's column rather than a point away from the I others. suppose so. Maybe if we're seeing it from Kate's perspective, maybe it makes them seem more inconspicuous or conspicuous than your average bear. But at least from what we saw, which was just like two randos walking through the jungle, not even wearing camouflage colors, like it seems pretty easy to indicate that, yeah, these two guys are following us. Uh, they open fire. It's a little firefight. One of the guys dies. The other guy runs away to go and tell Juliet, yeah, they think we're aliens, and Juliet's going to use that as a good joke later on in season three. Uh, meanwhile, uh, they're all freaking out, like, oh, one of them escaped. We got to run after them. We got to make sure uh, that uh, we get we catch up with them, otherwise our cover's blown. And Jack's like, hey, about that. He's dead. We have to find the other one. No. I'm going. Sam. I said No. You crazy? We let him go. They'll know we're coming. He'll warn them. It doesn't matter if we catch him now. We've already been warned. What do you mean, warned? Why don't you tell them, Michael? Jack. I don't know what you're talking about. Stop lying! Tell them. Tell them what? I know what you're doing, Michael. Now tell them the truth. Tell them! It was the only way. They gave me a list. What list? Had your names on it. I had to bring all four of you back when they said I'd never see my son again. Who are they? It's like I said, they, they live in a camp with odds. I swear, that's it. You let Henry go? Did you kill them? 
Apparently see ya. And leave you. Did you? I had to. I, uh, I couldn't find any other way. And, and, and Libby was a mistake. I, I, I didn't have time to think. But if you did have time... Still would have killed her, right? I'm sorry. You understand? I am sorry. I'm sorry. I... It's my son! Oh. It's a really satisfying scene. It's because yeah. like it is it's so wrenching from all the perspectives. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're primarily like angry with Jack and then you're you're heartsick for Hurley. And then like if you can get there, like you're heartsick for Michael, like this is disgusting stuff that he's done for the purpose of saving his child and he's like trying to express that. And it's like that does not justify what you did, man. But this is a very pathetic and awful situation we're in. Yeah. Um and it's just it's it's grueling. It's grueling. The emotional anchors of this scene by far are Harold Perrineau and Jorge Garcia. They really make this scene what it is, which is, in my opinion, this is the entire highlight of the entire uh, Others Kidnapping Jungle storyline, which, again, as I mentioned, the first couple scenes in the jungle I was not terribly high on, but this is a really incredible scene. Not only do we get this moment of Michael finally literally being cornered, there's some fantastic choreography where we have a literal advancing of Jack, Sawyer, and Kate on Michael. like They all step towards him almost at the same time, advancing, and Jack, you know, going probably the most aggro since the Booneral, just slamming Michael up against the wall. He is frustrated beyond belief, finally wants him to admit to what he's done. And Harold Perrineau, again, really threads a tricky needle here because he did do objectively bad things. But I think him being able to substantiate his regret and remorse for it while also doubling down on why he did it is done so well. But I love... Hurley doing first of all doing the heartbreaking mental math to figure out that Michael was the one who killed Libby and then also following it up angrily with but if you did had time have time will you still have done the same thing and so I didn't you know I, I didn't put this in the clip but obviously this thing he's gonna say right after Michael says it's my son is that he's going back understandably so because he was manipulated so many ways and was driven into such a mood by the actions and words of Michael. And now he's been caught out and realized that he's, he's been his own puppet on a string in a manner of speaking. And he is the one, his friend is the one responsible for him losing the closest thing he's ever had to a love of his life. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's awful. It's awful. And 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 even Matthew Fox has a great thing where like, he looks pained when Michael admits to it. Maybe it's because like you said, he sort of has been in, denial this entire time of like yeah maybe saeed believes he's been compromised but he really can't be and for michael to admit it like it's finally hit home for him he and, wanted to be wrong and he wasn't yeah. you know and Matthew, so, Matt, so jack looks like almost sick to his stomach yeah it's that tough. this is happening i mean it's it, tough as, yeah, as the leader of a group like you said it must be tough to feel like a betrayal in your ranks happened so brutally and so i think jack sort of takes the brunt of it as well even though i think he's going to try to emotionally substantiate then to keep going by saying, I know we're all hurting right now, 
But we have a plan. Don't worry. We just need to keep our guises up. Keep the guises up. Uh, and so they're going to keep going with the plan angrily uh, for most of them. Uh, like everyone's just like, sort of aching. The music is really intense underneath it all. Yeah. And I loved as well the like the one timpani drum that was yeah, pounding throughout that interrogation. It's almost like Michael's heartbeat. Uh, elsewhere, Saeed, who's been praying on the sailboat, uh, which is a, it's and- a that's a cool moment. I don't think we, re- I can't remember if there was a moment in uh, Solitary where we saw him pray. I don't think so. Yeah, I didn't know that, that, that he, that's he went to the mosque in the Greater Good, but I feel like on the island we have not seen him pray. No, we have. We've seen him uh, Solitary when he's when he's caught in 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 a Rousseau net. Um, he's praying to himself. Uh, we've definitely seen it before. Uh, it doesn't happen a ton, uh, so you don't mm-hmm. see it a lot. But this is a show that is, you know, largely driven by faith. Uh, and I, I think Saeed, being somebody who uh, holds that while also being such a logical person, too, uh, it's really no surprise that Saeed is constantly scoring MVP points from us because he's already, like, the perfect embodiment of what you're supposed to be on this show, what the show is making the argument for. It's like you can have, you can have some of column A and some of column mm-hmm. B. Um, the thing he's lacking is like self-forgiveness. Yeah, uh, it's he's fa- not kind it's to a, himself. If there's a lesson from law, there are many lessons from laws, but one of them is sort of like faith is a buffet, right? Where you can sort of pick and choose the things that you believe in as long as you're not loading up on one thing in particular. That's, the, that's an unhealthy way to pursue a line of thinking. Uh, so they're, they're there. They're, gonna, they're, they're at the, the spot. We'll, we'll see how that shakes out. The hole! They're at the hole. They found the hole. Um, all right, Charlie's going to find Hurley's secret dynamite stash, and he's like, Mr. Echo, be careful. Don't want to end up like uh, Dr. Arst. Yeah, it was just such a random thing, because Echo was just like, who was that? I don't yeah. get it. I was well, not there for that. Lost loves to reference uh, Leslie Arst. Yeah, to the point where I believe, actually, the first uh, previously on from Man of Science, Man of Faith did involve Dr. Arst. So again, yeah. a nice little... Uh, bookend here. And yeah, good on Charlie for remembering, because I think it was all the way back in Everybody Hates Hugo that uh, Hurley showed Charlie where he was keeping the dynamite. So good, good on him for remembering Good callback, it. too. Very good. Very good. Uh, so they're going to go, and they're going to set up the dynamite in the hatch. Mr. Echo is satisfied with Charlie's performance. It's like, all right, you can go. And Charlie's like, hey, uh, you shouldn't do what you're thinking about doing. And he's like, hey, lock, uh, knock, knock. By the way, uh, Mr. Echo... Uh, his answer to that joke is going to not be "I'll tell you later." It's "I'll tell it's you going never. to be an explosion." I'm going to tell you right now with a bomb. Uh, and Desmond's like, "Don't worry about it. It would take like an atom bomb to blow open the door. This isn't going to work, or at least put us possibly back into our appropriate time periods. An, an atom bomb will help do." Mister Echo nearly blowing everybody up over the button. Uh, like I don't know that this was the right way to go. And really, because of this, uh, this is this is directly going to lead to his death because he's going to be in such rough shape. He's going to get dragged off by a I polar mean, bear. Argu- that's not going to help. Arguably, it should have led to his death here. Yeah, that's what argue. I'm saying. He's like, and like you see him, like the fact that he's able to stand. After yeah, not only stand, like, but like walk up. over to lock to make check to make sure he's okay. Then like, oh, let me check to make sure all my organs have not been incinerated by the explosion I it's was impressive. in front of. It's impressive. Uh, uh, yeah. But yeah, this is an interesting thing where I guess that compressed compartment or a little like rolling cabinet that will sort of take us into the flashback has been there the whole time. And I guess nobody noticed it. The little wheelie thing that had the dent in it from what Desmond would use to hold the blast doors open. I suppose. So they just thought it was what part of the decor yeah, for this entire season. Part of part of the look. It's just part of the look. Well, I guess it comes in handy at least here because unlike the toolbox or John Locke's legs, does a very good job at holding up 
the blast doors as we see Desmond at uh, Kelvin's Emmons instructions purposely setting it off so that he could work on his detergent blast door map taking yeah. over from Rizinski the brown stain. Yeah, so yeah, that's what we find out. Well, Rizinski's up there. Uh and thank God cuz that guy's a dick. Uh, Do you think a Rosinski, much like Michael, could transmute himself into a brown stain? Uh, so he's like the way that Michael can turn into plants. Rosinski's like Alex Mack, but instead of like a mercury puddle, he turns into like a, a mud puddle. Yeah, I'm thinking it's some sort of like Animorphs thing where Rosinski can sort of transmogrify into some sort of liquid state, maybe. but he can't stay in it for too long. And because like, I don't know, maybe the button didn't get pushed one time or it got past 108 minutes, he got stuck as a stain forever because he thought he'd be playing a joke on Inman, like, oh, I'm going to drip down on Inman's head. He's going to be like, what's this brown goop? And, oh, it turns out it's me, Radzinski, pulling one of my classic pranks. But he got stuck there for too long, and now he is permanently a stain on the ceiling of the hatch. I think that that's fair, considering Radzinski as a character is like the personification of Stained, the band, uh, <laughs> which was already name-checked. He's on the off. ceiling. Yeah. He is <laughs> a stain. He is now goo. Um, <laughs> all right, so, like, Kelvin and Desmond are going to start fighting about like, oh, you got kicked out of the army. You couldn't follow orders. What about you? Because people followed my orders. Uh, and Inman's just like getting all mad about the Dharma Initiative and how they're just stuck here. Desmond wants to go outside. He says, I haven't been outside for two bloody years. I just want to go outside. Bro, we know. Yeah, we know. Hashtag oh relatable. Uh, oh, God. Tough content. I mean, so we, we don't exactly know, again, why Inman uh, wanted to hop onto the Dharma Initiative. I personally think he reached into uh, his previous personalities and thought about Mr. Eugene Crabb from SpongeBob SquarePants and just got, got offered too much money and hit the dollar signs in his eyes drew him to the island and down into the hatch. That makes sense to me. I buy that. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a little bit of Mr. Krabs in him, absolutely. I think there's every, every bit of Clancy Brown's characters live inside Clancy Brown, no matter what role he plays. <laughs> I think that that's probably right, to some extent. Um, all right, so Charlie's going to tell Echo, like, hey, I don't think we should do this. I think this is a bad idea. And what if, like, the button isn't even really a thing? Uh, yeah, so and Mr. Is- Echo removes Charlie's <laughs> belt from him, takes it off his bodice, and throws it at the feelings wall. And the feelings wall takes it. And Mr. Echo says, like, yeah, that's not a joke, dude. This place needs to be uh, protected at all costs. Yeah, I, do you think Charlie took Locke's side here momentarily to, like, try to be the negotiator in this moment of, like, hey, I'm talking you off the ledge, Echo? Because I don't know how much Charlie actually believes that the button isn't real. But at this point, I think his goal is, let's not Echo let Echo blow him and possibly myself up. And once that doesn't happen, once he lights the match, uh, Char- we essentially get, like, it's tough to say a more comical version of, uh, you know, lighting the fuse that blew up the hatch, but it, it doesn't have, at least when John Locke lit it in Exodus, it did, not, it did not have anybody saying, oh, bollocks, and trying to, like, gingerly run away from a lit fuse. Yeah, uh, I think Charlie's, like, realizing, like, okay, I'll follow Mr. Echo anywhere. He gave me a shot. He's been good to me. Oh, God, he's going to get us all blown up. I shouldn't be following Mr. Echo anymore. I guess Charlie does have this instinct of following these wise men who are uh, trying to get him killed, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to, like, wrap my brain around what Charlie's role in the finale is. Because, again, I think what Exodus does so well is it sort of slots each per- person as a part of our main ensemble into, like, roles or things to do in the finale. And it just sort of seems like Charlie is sort of like the comic relief, but also sort of like the tag-along, like you said, but he's also going to have a romantic moment. Again, I think it's indicative of their hesitation to really find 
a big moment for Charlie in season two where, you know, again, first he was the big comic relief, but then he had this whole thing where he was possibly using and he got outcast and then he's back in everyone's good graces. Like this just shows that Charlie is sort of like a ubiquitous character until they finally found a substantiated place for him in season three. Um, all right. In, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna get things ready to, to blow up. Uh, and, and it happens and it's bad. Yeah. And Charlie, again, like, I mean, I guess Charlie and Echo, I don't know if they're being protected by anything in particular, but Javad's barely a scratch on them, despite Echo being in the direct vicinity of an explosion, and Charlie getting, what, like, a plume of fire going up mm-hmm. in, in, in right near him? Yeah. Uh, it's very, very close call for Charlie. Maybe death is already coming for him, uh, and his, his proximity to Desmond here is not helping. Yeah, I guess so. It's, he sort of has, uh, that's the first moment when yeah. he's like, uh, get, this is where the final destination happens, I suppose. It's you were starting. supposed to die in the explosion. Yes. Yes. And because you did it, now death is going to haunt yes. you this entire season. That is correct. In the past, speaking of haunting, Desmond is basically going to start, uh, or he's going he's gonna to see that Kelvin is like haunting the hatch from the depths. Uh, mm-hmm. That there is like this wailing from somewhere beneath the hatch. And it's Kelvin Inman. And he's thinking about uh, blowing up something as well. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. What is this? This is the only other way out, partner. What are you talking about? Fail safe. Turn his key and this all goes away. What's behind that wall, Kelvin? Huh? What was the incident? Electromagnetism. Geologically unique. The incident? <laughs> there was a leak. So now the charge builds up, and every time we push the button, it discharges it. Before it gets too big. Why make us do it? Push the button? If we, if we can just... Here's the real question, Desmondo. Do you have the courage to take your finger out of the dam and blow the whole thing up instead? Desmond's, Desmond's like, like, yeah, I yeah. do. <laughs> well, Desmond's entire inner monologue during this scene was... What? <laughs> just in response to... A crazy thing, Josh, finally, the purpose of the hatch is confirmed after an entire season and some weird stuff going on with electromagnetism, and it is officially confirmed this is indeed the stopping point to prevent the source from essentially leaking out and pervading the entire world, but... Desmond will be now, courageous to, uh, yeah, to to take his finger out of the dam. Even though I guess John Locke is sort of like the one to pull his finger out of the dam. Desmond will be the one to be like, "Yeah, I'll keep it out for now. I don't need it." Yeah, uh, for now it's fine. For now he's 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 not ready to give in. Uh, but Inman can't do it either. Inman can't do it. Yeah, and, uh, I, and we'll say Clancy Brown does a great. Uh, many actors will tell you that being drunk is one of the hardest things to do while performing, and I think Clancy Brown did a really good job at it. And it also, again, really mirrors. The passing of the torch, much like Inman did to Desmond, that Desmond, Inman's acting in this scene much like Desmond was in the beginning of this episode, right? Just sort of like singing to himself, uh, beleaguered, just fed up with the state of the world, yet so, quote unquote, afraid 
to actually do the big thing and, and make it all go away. Uh, that he sort of lives in this world where weird purgatorial state where he wants everything to end, but he doesn't have the conviction to do so. Do you think that the dam needed to be introduced earlier, the chicken dam? Uh, did we need to did we no- need to know that this fail safe was an option before this episode, or is it fine for it to be here? Uh, you know, I am I am, I am a little surprised when we had Jack and Saeed go into the crawl space that they didn't see it. Because again, you know, it uh, it wasn't too Maybe far the, away. The, but the fact that they go into the crawl space in episode four at least is like suggestive of like the crawl space exists. There's stuff right. to do down here. So like they are giving us that. Um, I, I do wonder though if they did throw in just a thing of like Jack and Saeed, you know, before Jack walks in on Kate in the shower, uh, Jack and Saeed, like they, it could just be a cut to the box because like they don't have the key, right? They can't do anything with it. But like if they just open it up, see the keyhole, look at each other, cut away. I feel like that could be like a fun little thing that they'll throw in there and yet another lingering mystery. Because I do remember that something a lot of people were talking about at the time is like, wow, they came out of nowhere with all this information, you know? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, Speaking of a lot, uh, Desmond and Locke are are totally fine, but it sounded pretty intense on the (laughs) other side of the door. And Desmond has the great line, I think your friends just blew themselves up, brother. Uh, it's so fun. And I love, again, the casual, the casual aspect of it. Of like, yeah, I don't know those people, but I'm pretty sure they exploded. They just exploded. Uh, and Locke doesn't really care. He's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and Desmond's like, why are you like this, man? Uh, what's going on with you? Why do, Are you doing this because like, you need to like stare down the barrel of a gun and find out who you really are? And John Locke is going gonna, is gonna to tell Desmond uh, he's going to give him some, some real truth. And I think he's actually going to validate a lot of what we've been saying over the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. He says, I looked down the barrel of the gun. I thought it was my destiny to get down in this place. And then someone died, a kid, because he was stupid enough to believe that I knew what I was talking about. And on the night that he died for nothing, I was here beating my hands bloody. And then a light went on. I thought it was a sign, but it wasn't a sign. It was probably just you going to the bathroom. Uh, and Desmond turning on the light for Locke, and Locke recounting that story of Desmond turning on the light, turns on some kind of a light for Desmond as mm-hmm. well. You can see it in Henry and Cusick's face that, like, I mean, we'll see. That was the moment for Desmond where he had hit rock bottom, and much like Locke had found companionship in that one moment, he didn't realize that the, the person on the other side of that spotlight had found companionship as well. I really love this monologue from Locke because, listen, suffice it to say, no matter how the points go, Locke is the LVP of this episode from a consensus perspective because he nearly blows up the world. He is wrong, and he goes through great lengths to kick people out who are doing the right thing. But I love how he he throws everything on the table to substantiate his beliefs at this point, that he was a believer in destiny and how even though in the moment it seemed like he sort of shrugged off the boon of it all. This is something that clearly stuck with him, especially once he realized that it might all be for nothing, that maybe he's part of a psychological experiment, that this poor young kid ended up expending his life for what John Locke believes is nothing. And I think that guilt is something that has really fueled a lot of the decisions that he's been making in the past couple of episodes between, you know, sitting on the beach, avoiding stuff, and then finally taking action over the course of this episode. Again, it's not right, but it's rational according to John Locke in this moment. So it's not unsubstantiated for the character. And I do like this moment of reckoning as well, because, you know, for Jack saying at the end of season one, we're going to have a Locke problem because he seems so devoutly driven by the island. For him to essentially end season two, save one moment by saying, screw the island, 
they it made me kill somebody. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. It's such a stark contrast. Yeah. Saeed invades a village that's totally empty. <laughs> it's a fun scene. I like the well, scene. There, there was this weird knocking, and I couldn't tell if it was Saeed knocking to say, like, is anyone in here, or if something else Hello, was knocking. anyone home? Yeah, good on Saeed, I guess, for being polite and doing that here? thing where you're like, uh, like, when someone's office door is wedged open and you knock on it to, like, not spook them. As someone who's easily startled, uh, I greatly appreciate it. I personally, and again, maybe this speaks towards, again, why I'm not a huge fan of the C-plot in this episode— I never really understood the big deal about Saeed's discovery, especially if we were led to believe that what Walt said was true last episode, right? That, like, between the fake beard, Walt saying they're not who they say they are, to only have that be confirmed here feels like not a lot of new information. Well, I, I don't agree, because, I mean, I think that the whole tension of the episode is that Michael is leading them back to there. We've, we don't know any better yet. Um, and for Saeed to get there first and to discover that there's nothing here— means we as the audience are now signaled to what comes next, that something is wrong, the plan is not what the plan was supposed to be, that Michael and the party reached the, the spot where all of the handwritten marble notebooks have been barfed out into the, onto the island, and that the smoke goes up miles away. And mm-hmm. that Michael actually had a card that even we didn't know about, which is that he was never taking them back to the village. He was basically taking them to here, you would think. Right. Um, so, so I think that the idea of Saeed is invading the fake village, uh, it, it's really tense that there's nothing there. It sets us up for uh, the heroes never had a shot because they did not have the full picture from the start. That's a good point. That it's, it's less about the fact that the others were lying and more so that the location they were led to was a fake. So I guess we just didn't see that after, you know, Michael demands the boat from Miss Clue. What happens off screen is Miss Clue says, deal. Now here's the plan. You're actually not going to take them back here. You're going to take them to this, this nomadic tube dump. Cause that's when they ambush them with our 007 esque darts. Exactly. I don't get the darts still. Yeah, I don't either. Like, I know Widmore is going to use them as well. I believe uh, that's something that Kimi's going to bring in in season mm-hmm. four. So maybe it was like co-opted from when he used to be on the Island. But yeah, I'm not entirely sure either why they had to like get them in this particular location, especially since they were tailing them. I don't know why the whispers are here. I guess like walk into the middle of the island until you reach a spot that has a shit ton of marble notebooks. You won't be able to miss it. <laughs> yeah, I'll draw a map for you, John Locke style. Uh, I don't know why the whispers are here. Again, this is this was why a lot of people were really connecting the whispers to the others. Well, we've talked for a long about time. that a little bit. Like if we're if we're if we're putting that together, right, that like whispers serve as like scouts of sorts for the others and they work kind of hand in hand, the ghosts that can't move on and the others who are protecting the island that they have some sort of symbiotic relationship. I think it still plays totally fine for me. I wonder how much in proximity they are to the big dump of the people who got purged. Like maybe that's maybe it's the voices of all the former Dharma Initiative people that got gassed and those are the whispers that they're hearing. Could be. Um, could be those. I don't know why the, the Dharma Initiative would be willing to work with everybody, though. But that, yeah, but, that, but there's that, that maybe a maybe it's purely theory. coincidental that they're just like, oh, let's ambush them. But there's some fun little like, uh, you know, how would a character react in this situation where obviously uh, Sawyer's the one that's seizing out on the ground. Jack and Kate instinctively try to run away. Hurley just poor Hurley has his hands over his head, hoping this will all go Uncle. away. Yeah, and Michael Michael has his hands out just trying to, like, keep everybody together, even though it doesn't really matter at this point. He got them where they wanted them, and they just quickly dispatch of both. Even though, good on Jack for at least attempting to carry Kate away, but it is 
not enough as they other 48 days them and have some more stilted slow motion others coming into frame yeah i mean i think in like the resolution of this treachery uh michael is is trying to be a good guy here like do not hurt them you cannot hurt them these are my friends it's a little late it's a little late, unfortunately, for everybody. Yeah, or else. or I don't know if Michael thought that they would get darted. Like, I wonder if he was more so gesturing to everyone to be like, "No, stay here. Don't worry. We're gonna have friendly negotiations. We're gonna yeah. have a game night." Yeah, game night's happening. It's gonna be fine. Every everything's gonna work out just. I okay. hope you like Parcheesi. Yeah, because I love it. Um, yeah, we get the weird slow mo with Jack getting bagged up. Uh, so the A team is bagged up for the rest of the episode. And we're about to get into some strange pacing stuff, but we're not totally there yet. Charlie pacing. And we're get, we're going to get into some more Desmond stuff. He's uh, Desmond's asking questions uh, of Locke about the Pearl and like, tell me more about all of that. Because he's starting to piece things together and he's starting to, to believe that actually this was all real. And this this was purposeful this whole way through. Uh, and he's looking through like the records of the notes that Locke took from the Pearl mm-hmm. or Echo took from the Pearl. Good thing he did. Because uh, yeah. now Desmond can see this and he can cross-reference everything uh, about what happened with his experience, which we get to see. We have this flashback where uh, where Desmond follows Inman out to the boat, uh, to Elizabeth. He's got his quarantine mask on. Uh, he takes it off when he realizes he doesn't need it. Everybody else, keep it on, please. Yes, please, please Masks keep on. it on no matter what you think about a quarantine going on. I also like the little precursor conversation where, uh, you know, Kelvin's like, let loose a little bit, Des. Why don't you not shave? And uh, Desmond says, I'm never going to let go, brother, which, again, symbolizes the fact that despite his, again, moments where he feels like he is at the end of his days, like the beacon of Penny is something that is always going to keep buoying him. Uh, Though, you know, I think Henry and Cusack does take up Clancy Brown's advice a little bit and decides not to shave for a good portion of the rest of his run on loss. Oh, yeah, no, he's in big bearded mode for most of it from from here on. Um, Desmond's going to follow Inman after, like, you know, Kelvin really gave up the game of like, goodbye, Desmond. It's like, goodbye. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, it's like, unless this is the way that he says goodbye to him every single time, it is hella weird yeah, for him to it's just super say, sketch. well, goodbye, Desmond. It's, it's way sketch, and Desmond smells it, and so he's, he stalks off after him and sees that something's up, and what's up is Inman has been repairing the Elizabeth. He's been getting ready to leave. He's a week out. Desmond's so mad that they fight, and he's so furious and filled with such righteous fury that he single hits uh, he, with, 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 with he one shots and Inman. Yeah, yeah he kills right, him. right on the head with the rock. Uh, I mean, Desmond going going manic on him is such a, a buildup. It's a buildup of its own electromagnetic radiation, and here the failsafe key is triggered, and Desmond has lit up like a purple sky because he's is just taking out everything on him. And right, he's saying like, "You ruined my life." He basically makes him responsible for keeping him in the dark for so many years, uh, convinced that, you know, uh, he should not pursue a line of thinking with Penny or try to escape the island because what he's doing is wholly important. And Inman's perspective is interesting here, right? Because, again, Inman had this drunken moment. You think drunk minds speak sober hearts, where Inman opens up to Desmond about the true nature of the button. But then Inman invites Desmond along on the boat and then tells Desmond, screw the button, who knows if it's even real? So, Josh, I think my question is, what what does Inman believe? Does he think that he's actually saving the world here? Or do you think it was, like, what was his purpose then in his drunken ramblings to Desmond? I think at this point, uh, he is just gonna, he's, he's, he can't tolerate the situation anymore. And he's just gonna be an awful person and leave Desmond. Uh, you know, and he'll probably, like, if, if he's able to de-escalate the situation here, he'll still probably try and stick Desmond with button duty. 
um, and not leave with him. But he's too afraid to turn the key, and he also can no longer tolerate being in the hatch, so he's mm-hmm. got to get the hell out of Dodge. Whether or not he believes it anymore, I think, is beside the point. He's just done. Yeah, so I guess then his offer to Desmond to like come aboard was wholly pithy, right? I mean, I guess it also makes sense, considering that Inman's weird goodbye seemed to indicate that he was totally fine taking off without Desmond. I think it was just a last-minute sales pitch to be like, yeah, you want to come along? And as soon as Desmond says yes... Uh, he'll just knock him out from behind or something, leave him off the boat, and take off sailing away. Doesn't matter, because Desmond one-shots Inman. Inman's dead. Inman is, you know, he was already going to get an LVP point because he dies in this episode, but, like, he really earns it by getting killed in the single shot that Desmond uh, knocks him down. Yeah, especially as a spook, as he says, for yeah, 10 very, years. You think, you think very like a... weak uh, boss battle. An army commando would get, like, getting ambushed by the sort of feral guy is like yeah it's it's a pretty sad disappointing disappointing ending to this big guy but desmond very quickly realizes holy crap how many minutes has it been and he runs back to the hatch just in time to see finally josh we have seen you know the timer tick down to those ominous hieroglyphs but we have never seen the system failure message really pop up and things going kerblooey yeah things are going nuts and he's trying really really hard to type the numbers in and things are starting to move around and it feels like this is an event uh and he's eventually able to get the numbers in but not after a lot of to do Uh, and when we get back into the real time desmond has a revelation for john Locke. when did you come here what the island when did you come here how long ago? 60, 65 days. What was the date? What was the date? September 22nd. It was September 22nd. I think I crashed your plane. You know what I love about that, other than the the great line read of, I think I I crashed your plane, Mm -hmm. uh, is that um, the answer to who was in the hat, to what's in the hatch is a who, right? It's a person. And the answer to how did the plane crash, it's the same person. And that's great, but it's also a person. I really do think that you, you see that philosophy throughout Lost, that so often the best answers to questions, it's not a what or a how, it's the who. Uh, not the band. Yeah, say uh, Roger Daltrey crashed Oceanic Eight One Five. So Desmond crashed Oceanic Eight One Five, and yeah, the logistics or whatever. Unless like the plane responds to the electromagnetic energy differently than the fillings in your or, teeth. Or maybe do. Uh, Seth Norton saw the electromagnetism going. I was like, oh, cool. Let me check that out. You know, maybe he's like, ah, oh, I should see what that's all about. Um, I'm not bothered by it. I think it's it's a uh, it's a really really uh fun answer to the way that the plane yeah. crashed. Well, especially if Desmond's going to be a continual part of this series, this is a great way to show how important he is. Because again, up to this point, we're like, great, this is this guy that we randomly met the first three episodes and then was gone. Why should we care about him? And he is the direct causer, at least we think in the moment, of all these people being on the island. It's a really cool solution that I don't think anybody expected. So obviously this is going to be Desmond's turning point where he realizes that, okay, maybe the button was real after all. Does he think when the system failure happened back in September of 2004 that it, what, it was just like a big uh, elaborate hoax set up by whoever was watching them from the Pearl of like, wow, you guys did a great job spooking me with all that rattling metal stuff? Maybe. Um, yeah, I think also like he's probably in the process of like 
starting to get like a little bit drunk and going a little bit crazy and he's getting a little bit alone and he's probably starting to like self-doubt what's going on in the moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like this is one that just like sort of like escapes the possibility for him. Yeah. And then, I mean, I think now that he has a direct cause as to what the power of this is, like maybe he thought that it, it was a real thing, but like what he was essentially stymieing was some sort of small tremor, not realizing that, what he is preventing could bring down an entire plane. I think the the cataclysmic effect that that is is really going to inform his urgency in making sure that that button gets pushed to the point where he is going to try to sacrifice himself to make sure that that that's the case. Yeah, uh, because he's going to feel like, ah, it's really bad that that was on me, so I'm going to take care of this one. Sorry, guys, my fault. Yeah, but that's a great thing about, again, this Desmond character is we don't know much about him at this point, but he's a very honorific man. He is somebody who wants to do the honorful thing, even though there are things like, you know, him uh, going AWOL in the army. It's it's out of out of the honor for the people that he cares about. The reason why he stays inside, in my opinion, is because Inman gives him an order. And for the most part, I feel like he is going to follow orders. And so because he feels like he is responsible for what happened and for so many people's misery, he feels like he's the one that brought them there. He's the one who has to stop this problem from happening. It has to fall on his shoulders. Totally. 100%. Um, All right. So here we go. The others have Jack and Kate and Sawyer and Hurley at the pier at the ferry, which we'll see a bunch of Uh, times, especially in the Dharma days. I always call these these mouth gags the Terrence and Philip gags. Because when they tie it around their mouths, it sort of bifurcates their head that makes it look like the flapping <laughs> heads from the Canadian South Park people. <laughs> I know you're Ben's big, Tom. Yeah. I'm not your friend, Ben. Oh, thanks for telling them my name, B. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's that's essentially what these gags always, oh, on, gag. remind, yeah. always remind me of. So they're going off to Canada. That's where Hydra Island is. Uh, it's Newfoundland. <laughs> Sawyer is sort of the Cartman of the crew, right? Exactly. Screw you guys. I'm yeah. going to sub. Yeah. Every man for himself. Um, all right. So they're here, and Kate's going to be like, hey, that beard's fake. I know it's fake. And uh, B Clue is like, yeah, she knows the beard's fake. And Tom's like, oh, thank God. It itches so much. To <laughs> I wear didn't realize uh, Tom Friendly was played by Harvey Firestein. Oh, thank God. Thank <laughs> exactly. you. God. So, do we think that then Mr. Friendly was the one that was like putting all the prosthetics on the others all yes. on Mrs. Doubtfire? Yes, that's absolutely it. But he's just thrilled to take this thing off, not so thrilled to have his name out there. So, he throws Miss Clue's name out there as well. And throwing himself out there, here he is the man, the myth, the legend. Benjamin Linus in uh, full-on Benjamin Linus mode. I love it so much. First off, there's a really fun little uh, indicator here where you it cuts to Alex for like a brief second when Ben arrives, and she's sort of glaring at 815 because she knows, obviously, the power that Ben has considering that she is in his quote-unquote direct family. But ah, uh, I love the assholiness of Ben giving like a small smirk and a bow to Jack and saying hello again. Like it's so douchey. It's so, so douchey. douchey considering the position that they're in, considering that like he has now officially revealed himself as the leader of the others. And this is going to speak volumes about the relationship that he is going to have to Jack, especially in the beginning of season three, when really he's going to have Jack as his prisoner, but needs something from him, right? He's going to treat him on a certain level of personability to show like, I'm not a monster, Jack. Like I'm going to regard you as a human being, even though I do have you, you know, you and your your friends are being tortured, and I have you captured so that you can save my life. Yeah, uh, he just rolls up like a boss, uh, and also he's, he's he's the total stage parent too. From Diamond being like, "Where is your beard, Thomas?" Yeah, come on, Tom, 
Get it together. Uh, it's I just love great it. to see Ben in full Ben mode. That's uh, the thing, yeah, because again, we, we we only know him up to this point as Henry Gale to the point where in his five episodes, you and I questioned several times, is that Ben or is that Henry Gale? No qualms about it. This is Ben Linus right I'm now. hype. I'm hype. I'm really hype. We're in. We're officially in the Ben Linus days, and it's great times. Great times had by all. He's going to tell Michael, we're, okay, time to take care of business. First, let's, uh, let's wait until the sky turns purple. So all that's got to happen right now. <laughs> yeah, listen, uh, Michael, I'd start the conversation. I know we get interrupted by the sky turning purple, so let's it's, just it's, wait a little bit. <laughs> it's from this moment onward that I just think the pacing of the episode, even though the content is epic and awesome and great it's just the pacing is a little yeah. strange for me uh and always has been uh after that first watch after i was able to like kind of like shake off literally that purple glow of the sky and then like rewatch it and think about like how did like so ben and michael are able to just like weather that and then like go about business as if nothing happened and michael isn't like hey by the way i think that the terms have to change a little bit i don't know if, is the boat gonna work with the sky having it's like it's fine you'll be fine uh, whatever. Anyway, yeah, or or even Ben's like, this has never happened before. What the hell was that? At the hatch, Charlie is going to wake up from the explosion. His ears are ringing. Uh, Echo is wrecked. I, Mis- I, Mr. Echo, he's oh, in tough shape. I, I also definitely thought the first time I saw this that Charlie was bleeding out the ears, which wouldn't make sense considering again he was in close proximity of an explosion. But yeah, Echo. I mean, Echo is recto, but not recto enough for him to not be able to like saddle himself up and be like i still gotta i gotta make sure my buddy's okay he's like limping off to see what the hell is going on uh and inside by the computer we're at like 355 and desmond's like we have to push the button it's real all of it is real none of this is a lie all of this is real i crashed your freaking plane man (laughs) and Locke's not having it he's so defiant he picks up the computer and tosses it and desmond is now freaking out you killed us all. Yeah. Tesman's like, no, oh, I damn it. Maybe I shouldn't have shot the computer. Maybe I should have smashed it. Maybe that would have yeah. helped. <laughs> so that's it. Uh, I, you killed us all. He says, no, I just saved us all. Uh, it's bad news. John Locke is, in a, is, in a, is, is really over the line here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it makes sense, again, from his perspective. He feels like this is almost like a precursor to him throwing the knife in Naomi's back, right? Like, he is a by-any-means-necessary type of person, no matter what he's driven in and so he's like okay listen if you keep challenging me i'm gonna smash the computer so none of us get to have the temptation to press the button and i mean again it's going to be the wrong thing but it makes sense given the circumstances of john locke that he if he has any sort of belief pattern he's going to do anything to further substantiate it that we'll see a very different john locke a couple minutes from now in the past yeah uh so desmond's gonna open up the blast door charlie's like Help my friend! He's just been blown to smithereens. And Desmond's like, "Believe me, I'm trying to help all of us right yeah. now. Get out of the way!" Charlie. Don't worry. We'll have we'll have for further dynamic more down the line. I'll yeah. just I'll just say hi to you here. We'll have time later on. Desmond in the past is going to be on the precipice of reading the final book he would ever read. Our mutual friend. Uh, but it turns out he's got other reading material. There's a letter from Penny in here. Penny literally saves Desmond's life. He sa- she saves everybody by having written this letter that causes Desmond not to take his own life, that causes Desmond to be alive long enough to, to stop the, to, to flood the dam. Uh, Penny for president. This is great. She didn't mean it, but it worked see, out. See, that's the thing. That's interesting, because I do believe, like, so when Desmond tears the hatch apart, do you think it's more so him being like, I'm not going to kill myself, but boy, am I mad? Because I still thought he was sort of not necessarily suicidal, but still on that destructive train of thought of, I can't believe that, like, this is, you know, this is the one person that I was trying to get back to. And now there's a chance that I'm going to be stuck here forever. 
Yeah, I think that she's, uh, he, you know, she's fueling him to a certain degree, but also like fueling him with a with a rage that's like so disruptive of the depression that he's in in that moment. Mm, yeah, uh, and Locke pounding on the door is the reminder that he needs in that moment that there is a world outside that it's not all gone, and that's what he tries to tell John when we flash back to the present, and he's telling John that. Uh, I heard this banging on the on the door three days before you came down here. It was you. You say there's no purpose, that there's no fate, but you saved my life so I could save yours. Uh, really, I've loved I've loved this whole sequence. Oh no, uh, I'll I'll be completely upfront, Josh. This is by far my favorite part of the episode. Oh yeah, by bar none, it is just this entire, even just the flashback sequence of watching Desmond at death's door after being so contained in the first part of the flashback with I don't know hope or at least determination. To see him so washed up at this point, but washed up to a different extent than we saw him in the beginning of the episode while he was aboard the Elizabeth. And then whether or not you want to say he was driven by Penny at this moment, it's very clear that he is on the emotional brink right now. That he thinks there is no getting out of this situation. And as much as we might beleaguer the Rashomons that have taken place over the course of this season, I love this Rashomon. I mean... I made it clear very many times how much I absolutely love the ending of Deus Ex Machina, and to see the other side of it is such a beautiful moment, specifically Desmond's tears of joy as he shines the spotlight up there. Because like you said, Penny's words are, all we really need to survive is one person who truly loves us. And look, uh, John Locke is not going to have any love for Desmond David Hume, but in this moment, Desmond is projecting that love onto another person. Uh, He has been sitting in his loneliness, even though he has had a compatriot, for so long, whether it was him in prison, whether it was him fruitlessly pursuing Penny despite uh, his father's best, in- her father's best intentions, or whether it was him sitting on this weird island being guided by a mysterious force that turns out to maybe be completely lying the entire time, he feels like I am alone in this universe. And what this is reminding him of is you are absolutely not. And if there is someone out there right now, Penny is still out there. And you can get home. And I think that is what's going to drive him to ultimately make the leave that he does and get onto the Elizabeth. And some might say he was a coward for running away from the the button once the computer got shot. But it's also a manner of him realizing that now he can take advantage of this opportunity to run back and say, you know what, I did have my honor. Uh, I, I was able to do what I did. And while he will have the opportunity to sort of capitulate on that honor here... I think it's a, just a fantastic moment for the character where he really is, I think, at the low point in, in all of Lost. And the fact that he was able to find such companionship in a guy that was seeking the same thing in that moment, who had just lost Boone and was looking for some sort of sign from the island, it shows that at the end of the day, as much as we might personify the island, the island is the people. The island is the people who make it up, and whether they be hostiles or others or uh, Dharma Initiative members or people from Oceanic 815, what the people do on this island will determine what the island does. And to have these two find each other in that moment, passing in the night without even directly acknowledging one another, to see how much they helped one another in their own emotional arcs, I just think is an absolutely beautiful connecting moment. It's, It's really, really great. Uh, and like even Locke at this point is like maybe with like the intensity with which Desmond is like plummeting down into the depths of the hatch and he's got an action plan. Uh, like Locke is starting to waver a little bit. He's like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And Desmond's like, dude, it's not definitely get away from here. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm going to blow the damn. I'm sorry for whatever happened to you, but this shit's real and I am going to go fix it now. Uh, so he plummets, he descends 
everything starts going nuts, uh, pots and pans and darts, and everything is just crashing together. Uh, Charlie almost gets crushed again, uh, <laughs> sort of similar to, to the airplane. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a really good touch. Um, but Mr. Echo is going to somehow miraculously be like standing and weathering all of this pandemonium long enough to find John Locke in the middle of all of this and provide us with what is one of the truly final iconic Mr. Echo moments and certainly a really great iconic John Locke moment. I was wrong. That's <laughs> it's it. simple, you know, it's simple. But it's, uh, it's that was I was wrong is, 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 you know, three of the most iconic words in the whole show. And so cathartic in the moment, right? Because, again, I think a lot of people... It's like, yes, the, you were, you jerk! Yeah, exactly. Ah. Like, again, John Locke in season two is such a complicated character. And I think a lot of people were growing frustrated with him. So to have him do that, especially a character like John Locke, who, again, will not admit he was wrong many times. He will twist his words to be like, well, listen, uh, I didn't necessarily make a mistake as much as I thought what I was doing was right, but it turned out to maybe not be the case. Him saying that he is wrong is a big big thing but maybe it also says something about the person that he's saying it to yeah right like that it turned out to be mr echo the guy who was who Locke was trying to strong arm away from the computer for Locke to tell that to him says something about their relationship which unfortunately will come to an end a few episodes from now yeah uh it's just great and this is also i believe the last the last thing Locke is going to say in season two as well yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, we will not see him again because uh, Desmond is down in the abyss and he has reached the dam and he's got the key. And this uh, is my favorite moment of the episode. survive is one person who truly loves us and you have her i will wait for you always i love you i love you penny And then this guy turns purple. Yeah. And you hear, oh, and I, I love, you know, those sticks that you would uh, hold up back and forth. They're going, that's the noise the sky makes as it goes. Purple. Yeah. Or like a, a Vuluzela, like, yes. or, or that's those swinging sticks that you would swing around and make like a yes. noise. But I, I love the sound mixing in that clip in particular, that the droning of the electromagnetism, which I guess is sort of like Desmond basically experiencing one of those static balls you experience in a science museum just to the extreme with all the magnetism going on. That fading away and bringing in the music, I think it's just a great symbol of like probably what's going through Desmond's head, where he is solely focused on Penny at that moment and how driven he is by her love and why he's doing this to essentially protect her in a manner of speaking. It's I, I think it's it's a really fantastic outcome. It's a really interesting way to end uh, the Hatch storyline. I think we could get into next week and definitely the start of season three about maybe their choice to not kill anybody who got involved in this Hatch implosion. Interestingly enough, Josh, at the moment when this happened uh, back in 2006, did you think Desmond died? Mm, no, because Locke and Echo were there. Uh, and I didn't think Locke and Echo had died. So I thought that it was certainly possible that if, if 
Locke and Echo were going to make it, that Desmond would make it too. And I think that uh, that Darleton were pretty cards up about how um, they're not just going to introduce this this brand new quarterback into the show and kill him off in a single episode appearance. Though that too would have been gutsy. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm glad they didn't do it. Uh, and they were saying that in interviews and stuff like back in the day when they would they would be doing not just the podcast, but, um, you know, talking to to EW or whoever. Um, so I think that it was pretty known at that point that if if Desmond wasn't going to be back as a fixture on the show, he was at least going to be uh, returning to the show in some capacity. So I didn't think he was dead. No, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a couple of weeks afterwards. They're like, don't worry, Desmond's a part of it. I did think at the time, though, maybe because I hadn't read up on that material that. There was a chance that Desmond was going to die. And in that case, again, it would be super bold on Lost to introduce this super important character, you know, a part of the Dharma Initiative, albeit uh, not to his own volition, ended up crashing Oceanic 815, and also the person who ends up sacrificing himself to save our intrepid crew. Would have been a very interesting choice. That being said, that was not the choice that was made. I'm very happy that we have Desmond sticking around for a number of reasons, but man... What an I, I can't we can't really call it an introductory episode, but like what a highlight episode for for Desmond Hume. Uh it's the best. It's it's very it's a very good look for Desmond. All of the Desmond stuff is really really excellent. Yeah, I would. I mean, I, in my opinion, that's the best part of the episode is all the Desmond stuff. I mean, flashbacks included. The purple sky stuff is just so confusing to me that you see it. You see everybody reacting. You see everybody is like putting their hands over their ears and like freaking out over everything that's gone on. It is obviously such a huge event and such a big deal. Um, But then like, it's, it's almost as if nothing happened as the way that the episode treats it. And that's tough. That is tough for me to swallow. And I think that, uh, you know, we've, we've made some jokes along the way about things about the episode by and large up to this point. This is a 4.2 episode for me. This is where it starts to lose me a little bit. It's just the pacing of this stuff. The purple sky. The sky going purple. This is not something where, like, right afterwards, everybody should be able to, like, accommodate a yeah. negotiation it's, between it's Ben not, and Michael. It makes no sense. It's not rain. Neither that, I, that, too. And also, like, we'll get into, you know, Charlie stumbling out of the jungle, then being like, hey, what happened to Lock and Echo? Uh, I don't know. Hey, let's go hang out by the fire. You know? Like, it feels like the stakes of what just happened are completely negated in that moment, which feels very different to me than, again, Exodus, where they did a pretty masterful job of really ending, you know, both of the main storylines on this really climactic note. I think just the way that it timed out here, maybe if they bump this and then if they put the negotiation before this moment, honestly, if they ended with the key being turned and then maybe they, like, flashed to purple and then it was lost, I think that's a perfect way to end the episode. Yeah, I mean, it's very evocative of season five, and I think it leaves us with some mystery. And I think... I think that the reason it's paced this way is because uh, they they figure like, all right, so Michael's gotten away, but then if you see like the sky's gone gone purple and we don't have any resolution about what's happened with Michael and Walt, um, like now are we wondering if they just got swallowed up in whatever happened and they want to make sure that they have like something of an end point of on that storyline. I appreciate that instinct. I think it's the wrong instinct. I think that they just time it poorly. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like because of the limited amount of time that they have to develop this episode, if they thought about it a little bit further, I wonder what would have changed. Um, but it's it's the big red flag for me. I guess the purple flag for me <laughs> is uh, is just the timing of this. It's just it's very odd. It's hard to reconcile. It's a good thing we've got the season two feedback show next week, so we'd love to get people's takes on this um, and talk that through. Does it negate the stakes for you a little bit, all of the follow-through? As you say, Mike, 
the first like bit of dialogue that we get once this all goes down is Charlie showing back up at the beach. And he's like, uh, oh, Locke and Echo aren't back yet. It's like, you saw Echo blow up. <laughs> also, go back for them. Go back for them, man. Like, <laughs> Go so check it, out what happened to your friends. Uh, it is I mean, odd. I, it's odd. It's very odd. And, I, you know, also, uh, we go back to the beach for like one second. First off, I'm glad Claire eventually covers Aaron's ears because that was like the thing I immediately had a knee-jerk reaction to. Is was like, someone please cover this poor baby's ears. I don't want him to get tinnitus from this uh the sky exploding but once again much like the pilot uh claire is taken out of the way of falling debris the quarantine door is stuck in the sand we forgot to mention before that uh when when Locke locks echo out he goes out i guess the back door in a manner of speaking in the og hatch door and that's where he finds the quarantine door which i guess like further proves the fact that he needs to get in there but i guess it officially says that r.i.p hatch considering that claire nearly gets decapitated by the quarantine door yeah, should the hatch get an LVP point for dying? That's a good question. I guess do we give it to Radzinski because he built the hatch and that died? Yeah, but we don't see Radzinski, and Radzinski die died in too this. as the stain because I'm assuming the stain imploded as well. We don't see Radzinski die in this, but we do see the hatch die. So I wonder. Uh, yeah. But we all we only have the one inanimate object on the board. I don't <laughs> um, know and I also, there is a fun little small badass thing. Well, I, I would say initially badass because I think on first view, you're like wow, Ben isn't covering his ears. That's pretty badass. It's like the cool guys don't look at explosions. But admittedly, when they cut back to the to the Palafari dock, he does have his ears covered. So Ben is not a complete badass, it seems. Yeah. Uh, all right. So he's like freaking out about everything that's going on. And by freaking out about everything that's going on, I mean kind of just for a little bit uh, until it's ready to resume business with with Michael. Uh, and so Ben and Michael are finally going to have a moment where, you know, Ben's basically like, thanks for, uh, for, for saving my life. Deal's a deal. Uh, appreciated that. Uh, and it's going to be one of the final Michael interactions we have uh, on Lost. For I mean, it is the final Michael interaction we're going to have in a very, very mm-hmm. long time. Let's listen in. I'm not happy about the arrangement that was made with you, Michael, but we got more than we bargained for when Walt joined us, so I suppose this is what's best. And you let me go, set me free. You lived up to your word. We live up to our word, too. Do you know how to drive a boat? Yeah, I can drive a boat. Good. Then you're going to take this boat and follow a compass bearing of 325. And if you do that exactly, you and your son will find rescue. Well, that's it? I followed the bearing and me and my son get rescued? Yes. How do you know I won't tell people about where I was? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But it won't matter. Once you leave, you'll never be able to get back here. And my hunch is you won't say a word to anybody. Because if you do, people will find out what you did to get your son back. My friends, I was promised you wouldn't hurt them. Deal's a deal. you people we're the good guys michael that line read always reminds me of star fox did you play star fox which one uh who are you people uh because there's a line uh when you kill the first boss in star fox where the boss that you kill goes 
who are you guys? And then Star Fox responds by saying, we're Star Fox. Is this, is this Star Fox 64? Are you talking like SNES Star Fox? I believe it's 64. Yeah, because I, I know that 64 also had the infamous line reading when, uh, spoiler alert, Fox McCloud meets the visage of his dead father, and he does the great line reading, Father? Yeah. Uh, Which I think could also work in Lost. <laughs> Uh, my favorite in the SNES version was how uh, Slippy uh, would say, I, or it was either Slippy or Falco, whose voice always sounded like, couldn't be better. I would imagine that's Falco, because Slippy, Slippy has the high-pitched voice, and Peppy talks like this. Yeah, Peppy's great. I love Peppy. We'll do a Star Fox uh, deep dive for our Down the Hatch uh, sequel. We'll, we'll tie that into our Watership Down episode. Yeah. I think so. All the, the bunny, all the various bunnies yeah, across Peppy pop will lead us down. So timing okay. notwithstanding, I think this is a really, really great scene because this is a fantastic passing of the baton from Lost perspective in that we have now officially bid farewell to the hatch, which was the big part anchor point of season two. And we're sort of moving away from what I would say the big bad was in season two, at least the past few episodes, was Michael doing these very dark and depraved things and truly showing what these people are going to be in for, for season three. Just how menacing Ben is. is He's chewing up this scenery, and man, do I love it. Between him, you know, uh, rudely asking Michael if he knows how to drive a boat, considering that he knows that Michael had, could drive a raft, and that can, to the point where he stole his son off the raft. Um, him taunting Michael by being like, you'll never be able to come back to the island, and listen, you can tell people, but I feel like you won't, because, oh yeah, you killed people. You killed people! And I and then then it just ending with who are you people? We're the good guys, Michael. It's just with a small well, again another fantastic small smile. It's a great menacing indicator of where we're possibly going in season three, especially when Ben says, you know, they're coming home with us. It's such a big game changer. Of wow, we have feared these others since really early on in the series, and now we're going home with them under this guy's leadership, who is just absolutely dripping with malice. What the hell is going to happen, I fear for them. And granted, uh, we're not going to, you know, say goodbye to these people right now. But this is like, this to me is the big climax of that storyline of, wow, now we see why they were brought here. This is going to completely change the show in so many ways now that we're going home with the others and Michael is finally getting to leave the show in a manner of speaking. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, I I also always uh, thought it would be ridiculously crazy if when uh, Michael and Walt reunite on the boat and Ben goes, bon voyage, Michael, that the boat just explodes. Yeah, I I also in the moment thought it was going to be a Twilight Zone type of thing, depending <laughs> on how, how cruel Ben is, where like Michael gets on the boat and he's like, where's bon. Walt? He's like, drive, Tom. And Tom just like drives the boat off with Michael. So Michael ends up leaving the island without his son. But yes. no, it does seem like Ben kept true to his a deal as a deal. Maybe he's deal trying to, again, deal. substantiate this idea that he is the good guy here. Apparently... He's also working the Michael angle, right? He's like, yeah, that guy might be a spy for me someday. So I want to yeah. make sure that I give him what he wants. Exactly. Uh, and again, it also seems like a win-win because, as he said, Walt was causing them uh, some trouble. And I also like, it's really sad but like in retrospect, but like the smile on Walt's face as the two of them embrace, knowing that probably, what, a cup, a week, maybe a couple days from now, Walt's going to find out what Michael did and basically completely disown him for life. 
I also found out something. You Josh, love that movie magic, right? When uh, Michael is on his knees and Walt is uh, not actually looking like he's towering above yeah. Michael, but clearly uh, uh, he is uh, now 8,000 feet tall. Yeah. They're doing the whole Lord of the Rings thing. They did right? a good they're job. Sh- they're yeah. shooting him from above to be yes. like he's short. Uh, there's also, on the loss on location for this, there's actually a fun little Easter egg that I did not know. But Josh, when they initially filmed this scene, it was not just the two of them aboard that boat. It was supposed to be then Michael, Walt, and Vincent left the island together. Can't send Vincent off with a murderer. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. Like, I they guess, can't I, do I, that. I guess because they figured that they came on the island together. I don't know how that would work if, like, Ben's like, and we found your dog, too. Yeah. Come on, Vincent. Or, like, Vincent would have been following them the entire time. But, yeah, there are shots of them filming this scene where Harold Perrineau drives the boat away from the dock and Vincent the dog is there, so I don't know if they, like, CGI'd him out, if they realized that that was not a... Vincent had other stuff to do on the island, but yeah, initially, Vincent made it off the island before any of the Oceanic Six did. Uh, good choice to leave Vincent behind. I think that pays off well. Yeah, and then there's also... Now not and a good call. There's a... The, the end of this scene lingers, but it, it lingers, you know, profoundly, because all it is is this slow bolt just, you know, meandering away from the dock, and you see Walt look back at the glares... That Jack and Kate and Sawyer, we have we don't really see Hurley, uh, but you know, uh, well, I guess Hurley was sent as the envoy at this point. Hurley gets cut away, so he's not around. But just the glares that they're shooting to Walt maybe makes him believe in that moment. Okay, maybe this is not as cut and dry as I might have believed about my dad getting us off the island. Clearly, they did something to make us mad. But I say the last like thirty seconds of this storyline are just people silently exchanging glances with each other. Yeah, and it's it's really it's really great. Um, I think that it's my memories of the episode and the way that it made me feel it's changed because the Michael storyline does end up getting resolved Mm. Um, and it gets resolved in a really rushed way due to the writer's strike in season four. And so it's it's always left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth the way that they end Michael's story. I wonder if the rewatch will change that at all. I'm very open to it. I hope so. Um, But I loved at the time when Michael and Walt sailed off this idea of like, yeah, you can leave, you can get out, but it might not be great. Yeah. You know? at, at, at what cost does it take for you to escape this purgatory by essentially doing a bad thing? And I think that they're seeding this idea that they are going to explore in the much grander way of the Oceanic Six. Uh, so uh, it's, it's good track for that idea of like, yeah, you can leave, but maybe you shouldn't. Maybe leaving requires a uh, tremendous personal uh, and literal sacrifice of other human beings uh, that there is blood on the field if you're if you're trying to escape this place uh, and it's just not worth it maybe you are meant to be here and maybe you should be looking your destiny in the eye um, and I and I thought that that was a really powerful thing to explore through one of the original characters through Michael yeah. well, it's, um, well it's also interesting though because I remember at the time thinking wait a minute we just saw Desmond try to escape and he wound up on the island. So I thought, again, going back to the ironic Twilight Zone ending, I thought there was a chance that Michael and Walt wouldn't leave the island, that Ben had tricked them, and then they would end up, you know, much like with the raft, washed back onto the shore, and it's almost like Gilligan's Island where they can never get off, and now they have to, Michael sort of has to face the guilty parties that he betrayed for an escape plan that didn't end up working. So it was a bold choice to have them do that. And again, I will say, if they ended on this scene... I would be totally happy with this. But again, I, I really do not like the fact... I do not like uh, flat out the next two scenes that we get in this episode. Uh, you don't like the, the ending ending scene? 
We'll talk about it. I'm not a big fan of it. I'd say again, if we're talking oh, about endings, endings to these episodes, it's it's again my least favorite of all the uh, finales. Sure, but uh, to say it's a bad scene, we would we would be deeply. I'd say it's a worse scene than the, than the other uh, the other finale endings. Um, I'm trying to think of the other finale endings right now. I know we're jumping ahead a little. All right, bit. well, let's, all right. This. How about this? So we have we have to go back. Yeah, we have John Locke in the coffin. We have yep. Juliet triggering the atom bomb, and we have Jack dying. Yeah. Uh, and we have, we, yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely the weakest. It's definitely the weakest, but it's not weak. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a fun ending, and it's our first, our first true suggestion of of hope uh, that somebody is out there, that somebody's looking for them, uh, that they actually might have a shot here uh, at getting off the island, uh, and that Penny, who's just been introduced. And I think that this is another reason to believe that Desmond isn't dead because they've clearly just introduced Penny as the character who may be rescuing them. Uh, I think the promise of the ending here, which we're just talking about now at this point, I think it's totally fine. And I think like the weirdness of it, of Matthias and Henrik uh, and like fake Matthew Fox, there were so many theories about is this guy Jack with makeup on? He's not. It's not that. Um, would have been amazing, but that's definitely not it. Uh, but the fact that they're just like in this weird snow globe area looking for electromagnetic energy, uh, as as Desmond had already introduced earlier in the episode, the possibility that there is no world outside anymore, to find out that he's wrong, but to get it through the lens of the snow globe idea too, was a really cool idea. Some people read it as like, are they inside of a snow globe? Mm. And that is like a very fun TV tropey thing. Um, so I don't know. It's it's all very very weird, but hopeful at the same time, and that's lost. So of the examples of the endings that are on the board, I think just by default, in the same way that I think that this finale ends up by default being the bottom ranked finale, I think this scene ends up being the bottom ranked final scene of a finale. Uh, but they're all dynamite as far as I'm concerned. Well, don't say that too soon because Echo is feeling that. I know. Uh, I know. But to me. It feels like like this was super weird at the time. Again, like this really got people's minds going as to what happened. Obviously, there were big questions of like what happened to the hatch, what's going on with the others, and now this stuff. I think my sticking point with it is that unlike the other endings, this also doesn't get resolved immediately. Like this ending deals with two characters that we're never going to see again and someone who is going to show up maybe a couple of times in season three mostly in flashbacks, whereas these other endings at least deal with our main characters in some perspective. You know, they deal with the stuff that's going on with the people on the island directly involving themselves in the action. So it really feels like a redheaded stepchild in a number of ways. And the fact that it doesn't pay off immediately is something I have personally, I don't know, a bit of an issue with, because it's sort of like, you know, we just found out, like, why should we care about Desmond? We learned all this stuff. And then to be like, okay, why should we care about these two guys playing chess and speaking Portuguese? And it turns out we don't really need to. It just seems a little WTF for the sake of being WTF that I think some other endings, even outside of finales, have been able to pull off better. Yeah, of course. Um, But I still think they do it well. I still think they do it well, and I like it as a bit of an outlier. Uh, I'm not mad at a bit of an outlier. Uh, The fact that it it is just so strange and it's so separate from everything else. I think it just like launches us into this next phase of the epic uh, where rescue once again becomes a priority and, and for the first time a real possibility starting in season three um, with the submarine, with Jack striking the deal to get out of here with Juliet, uh, things like that. Um, uh, this is because of this scene, we are able to like really shorthand 
everything that happens with Charlie and through the looking glass, right? Because Penny's already on the board. We as the viewer already know to be expecting that Penny is looking for them. Um, so all of that, all of that is possible because of this scene. And I think the surreality of it just sort of like lends to like what you wouldn't have thought at the time that it's only season two rescues on the table. And so rescue is suddenly on the table. Uh, so I think it, it, it all meshes together really well for me. It's just, everything else that is listed as the final scene of a season of lost. It's just going down the hatch. I guess that's controversial. Maybe some people wouldn't agree on that. Like maybe uh, there are people who would think that the season one ending is more frustrating than uh, exhilarating. I'm not one of them, but I I would also say it's frustrating to have this happen. And then for it not to be resolved for even like, we don't talk about rescue until a good portion into season three. But I don't think it's a, it's not a cliffhanger in the same way. Like this part of it is not a cliffhanger in the same way. This is an introduction of something. Um, The hatch, like the whole back half of season one is what's down the hatch. And we don't get the answer Uh, by the time the finale rolls around, we blow it open, but we don't know the answer. Um, Mm. This is not, not even something that we were really thinking about and yeah. then it's introduced so it's no just matter, a new setup no matter what you think about the ending i think we could say i'm i would much rather have this be the last scene than the scene before it of claire and charlie at the fire as the last scene of season two yes yeah, so just get mad get mad for me because i'm not as mad about it as you are i think it's annoying i think it's you know they really do just like shorthand us back into charlie and claire being totally fine after everything I'm not furious about it. The thing I'm most frustrated by with the finale is uh, the sequencing of the purple sky and then nobody treating it like a big deal when it's obviously a big deal. But you really hate this Charlie and Claire stuff. Why do they end the season with this? Why is this after the hatch blows up and after these the our main characters get taken by the others? Such big climactic moments. Why do they then decide to follow it up by here's Claire, Char- Charlie and Claire by the fire? First, I think it removes all stakes from those situations, because that's not the last thing we're thinking about anymore. Say what you want to about Exodus and the way that it ends, but remember that, like, Walt being stolen was the the last act break of the season, and so we really were on pins and needles as to what happened. If that was followed up by, uh, you know, Saeed and Shannon having a love scene by the fire, it just feels like a weird thing to end the season on not to mention the actual scene itself we talked about the incredulity of like charlie and the party not going back out to see if anyone is alive after it charlie also just acting very like i don't know dismissive of his time in the hatch like he's not telling claire about anything that happened felt really weird and like you said just the fact that she ends up kissing him what less than two weeks after he took her baby in the middle of the night and tried to burn down the camp to do so (laughs) it just feels like that's a little bit of like character assassination on claire's part i just don't know why you end the season on this that this is our last scene on the island proper for season two it makes no sense to me yeah i think this could have been cut yeah i think think they could have cut it yeah, I, I, I think if you take any of the other two scenes before it and, and then cut to the white of the Atlantic or of the of the Antarctic, I think that makes much more sense. Like, you are trying to jump from rock to rock here. I think oddly decided to be like, well, for you, Charlie and Claire shippers, we'll, we'll end on a fun, heartfelt note here. Just feels atonal to this really, really big roller coaster ride we had over the course of two hours. All right. Well, we're we're over two hours on this podcast talking about the finale. Next week, we've got the feedback show. So we're saving feedback for then. But we still do have the business of the MVPs, LVPs, as well as ranking the episode uh, itself. And since you're talking about the guy, and since we're doing things in a little bit of an unorthodox way, uh, Charlie's getting an LVP point from you, I assume. 
Yeah, I'm, it's tough because I want to throw two onto Locke uh, because of what he does. Oh, it's so tough, though. You know what? No, I think Locke needs to pay for his actions here. So I'm going <laughs> to... So Charlie is absolved. Charlie you is absolved. You're you're uh, you're you're just more upset with John Locke for what John Locke does than I you mean, are nearly, at Charlie. He nearly yeah. blows up the island and blows up the world because he is so convinced. <laughs> he literally says, "Josh, I have never been sure of anything more in my life," and he's one hundred percent wrong. Like, if we we docked Hurley an LVP point because he he didn't want to put the numbers in before, like we have to dock Locke. At, uh, spoiler alert, he's getting two from me, two LVP points. Wow. I was thinking of Charlie was initially on our dock. I was going to throw him in there uh, because I do think it's just very irresponsible that he does not go check on his friends. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't really care for just how like generally aloof he was over the course of this episode, but I, I have to punish Locke here for what he does in the season finale. Uh, by doing that, Mike, um, John Locke is ending season two with uh, negative two points. Wow. In the season two rankings. Uh, and I believe overall he has zeroed out. Oh, uh, man. Season two was a, was a, was a, was a stiff fall. Uh, very tough, uh, very tough deal for John Locke. He will fall harder in season three in a literal sense, yeah, but I think he will rise. He'll rise the ranks, I, I believe. And I know that we had gotten feedback, and I apologize that I am not getting uh, the source correct on this at, the, at this moment in time because I don't have it in front of me. But I read it as it came through of uh, somebody being disappointed that John Locke gets beaten up here in the MVP, LVP section uh, on Down the Hatch. But he's my favorite character. These two things can simultaneously exist. The big reason why John Locke is my favorite character is he's just so freaking human. Yeah. And humans often suck. <laughs> humans are often total turds <laughs> who get it wrong, who are wrong. And John Locke can be both things. And um, I think John Locke's really rough season here sets him up for everything that we get from John Locke moving forward. Yeah. Um, would you argue this is the worst season for Locke? In well, terms I guess, of like, you know, he gets killed at a certain point and he's yeah, dead for a whole season. Right. But I would also say that, first of all, that latter case is not necessarily John Locke. But even in like season five, he has like a mission, right? And he's trying to bring everybody back to the island that Jack acts on. Here, I think he does more stuff in the wrong than maybe he does at all in his lost yeah. career. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. But he's but also, like, I'm enjoying the ride. Oh, Just because he's getting absolutely. LVP points. We're talking in a lot of ways about, like, competency, right? Like, there is, like, negligence that is happening on John Locke's watch, and this is why he's getting dinged up. It's not because he's a shit character. Um, I think... I, I know Terry O'Quinn was really frustrated with the ride for John Locke in season two. I think that that... Frustration translates really nicely to John Locke himself um, in terms of the performance to the to the character. Uh, so all of that really, really works for me. It's just like you can't turn a blind eye to the fact that John Locke really biffs all this stuff up. Yeah. Um, all right, but, so that makes, up- but that makes his character interesting. Like we said, like this is a point where John Locke is going to wake up after the hatch implodes and say, okay. I heard you loud and clear, Island. I am fully devoted to you now. As a result, I will make sure nobody gets rescued in the weeks to come. Uh, so you've given him two LVP points. Um, you have one more to hand out. It's going to go to Chucky Wids. Yeah, let's put Charles Widmore on the board. Again, sure, I think this it. might be a long journey for Charles Widmore, but he's such a douche here. He also drives Desmond to have to land on the island. So I think that uh, his introduction is LVP worthy, and it will be the first of many, I believe. Um, I have two LVP points, and I'll give them to the dead man, Kelvin Inman, who just like gets one sh- glass, the glass jaw of lost, uh, glass Joe of uh, of lost enemies. Uh, Inman just knocked yeah, out. Maybe a Desmond's shot. that good at punch out. 
Yeah, he <laughs> Desmond Hume's punch out would be a very fun game. Uh, and you convinced me. Why not give Rosinski an LVP point? You know, we do see the brown stain that is Rosinski, so technically we see mm-hmm. what's left of him. And that guy sucks. So mm-hmm. the soonest we can give him an LVP point and officially get him on the board, I guess I'm fine with that. So this negative one Rosinski stain is going to be on the board uh, for the next little while before we, before we meet the man proper. <laughs> he, has a, he lingers much like the state until season five and we meet the man proper. Um, MVP points, I think you and I are fairly lockstep here that I'm, I'm giving a point to Desmond and a point to Penny. Ditto! Yeah. Self-evident, To put right? another uh, star-crossed lovers. Yeah, I mean, Desmond saves the world, and I think this is a coming-out episode for a character that's going to be very beloved in all our hearts, and Henry and Cusick just kills it on so many levels. Like, really introduces this character with fire and fury and complexity to the point where we are jonesing for more, and we are happy when he wakes up naked in the jungle in Season 3, Episode 2. And Penny, I mean, she's resourceful and she's able to uh, put she's able to start the ball rolling on what ends up getting people rescued at the end of the day. So uh, I'm going to give her some credit here, too, for being able to put that money and those resources to good use. I have that extra MVP point here. And I am, you know, the others really went out in a big way. Uh, Mm. I'm just going to let Ben take the credit, even though it's really not his plan that's ultimately being implemented. The mere presence of him in full Benjamin Linus mode is so exciting and just had like even watching it this time. I just felt myself feeling very hyped up. Uh, So I originally was going to give this to the others. But when Ben walks off the boat, every time, that just gets me. And especially because I've told that story about my friend who's like, I bet he's the leader of the others. Yeah. Like, Shut up, man. No way. And he was right. Uh, and it's great. And it's great. And he really sells it. And uh, we're, we're finally in the Ben Linus era. And I think uh, Ben, much like Locke, will be one of these uh, volatile characters on the board. Uh, times where he's just like rocking it and times where we're taking stuff away from him in the LV- MVP, LVP category. So... <laughs> Yeah, that being said, uh, we'll 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 give full stock of the final ratings next week. Uh, I yes. think it's safe. We have to do some auditing, I believe, to do some number crunching to make sure we have all of our ducks in a row. But next week, we will go into full length as to, you know, the rise and fall of certain characters. As I mentioned before, I think Kate is certainly a top news item I want to talk about in terms of her stagnation in the numbers. We'll see in the horse race between Echo and Saeed, who ended up coming out on top, uh, considering that neither one of them ends up getting an, an MVP point here, though maybe it's to the strength of the Desmond Penny pairing. So we shall see. But I'm very excited to look back on season two through these points. Well, let's look back on Live Together, Die Alone. The time has come. We wouldn't leave you on the cliffhanger without giving the 4.2 star rankings. Um, I really just figured this would be a 4.2. It's a finale. And it is it is so close for me because so much of it is so great. And it really is like this wobbly pacing issue at the end that is my, my big issue with the episode. And I hadn't really considered that in uh, in conjunction with the, the the challenges of making this episode before. And I do think given the challenges of making this episode, it's actually a really impressive episode. But it is very clearly the weakest of the six finales for me. And I do want to like mark it as such. So I'm doing something like very, very like cheap skatey. And I'm not giving it a 4.2, but I almost am. I'm giving it a 4.19. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but I want to mark it. I want to mark it as like, this is this is the weakest of of the finale. At least give it like a four point one six or one five. Go with the loss number. No, four four point nineteen. <laughs> it's just knocking at the door. It's just knocking at the door. It's right there. But I'm going to be petty and I'm just going to hold back the four point two. But uh, it's so close. It's so close for me. 
As petty as Tom Friendly revealing well, also, B's name. Well, also because I, I have such fond memories of the watching of this episode. Uh, and, and being, uh, you know, with, with one of my... Uh, school was out for, for, the, for the rest of the year at that point. Uh, and I was meeting up in, in the city with a friend and we were watching it together. And it was such a fun night. So I have, I have a lot of really, really fond memories of this episode that this is almost a, like, just like a perfect like, feelings episode of Lost mm. for me. Um, it's just, I, I do think that there are like weird wobbly issues, uh, that plague it. Not enough to like really, really ding it up for me, but enough that they need to be, uh, uh, acknowledged at the very least. Yeah. And that's the thing is that, uh, I'm not digging this episode immensely. I'm giving this one a four, uh, four straight up just because again, I think that there are some really great things. I said how much I love the Desmond stuff. And I think the two scenes that finish off the hatch storyline and the uh, getting kidnapped by the other storylines are so well done. But I feel like this is the only finale where I feel like there's a there's a good chunk of stuff that I'm lukewarm to cold on. Whether it's the couple of scenes and them wandering around in the jungle that I feel are a bit unnecessary. Uh, whether it's this whole storyline of them sailing around that ends up resulting in like an interesting uh, cliffhanger scene. But there's not really much surrounding that in terms of character. And whether it's deciding for some reason to end the season on Charlie and Claire nonsensically, it just feels like, and maybe it's due to the circumstances of making the episode, so I do give it some leniency there. But, I mean, if I'm looking at these other episodes, like Two for the Road, Lockdown, Man of Science, Man of Faith, I feel like those are more well-compacted and more well-done episodes. I put this on the same level as, like, the 23rd Psalm, or one of them, or even something like Orientation. So it is getting a straight four from me. And look, I was not the only person to not think this was a 4.2 episode. I, I will say that. I think that of course. Uh, our average, the average score from the audience came out as a 4.0 as well. I have seen basically anywhere from the 4.2 range to like the high 3 range, to the, oh, to the point where somebody actually gave it a 3. Uh, so it ends up averaging out to 4.0 from the audience with your... 4.19, my 4.0, <laughs> and the 4.0 for the audience that averages out to 4.07, which ties it for the third place lost episode, the bronze medalist for season two, tied right now with its premiere, Man of Science, Man of Faith. Though, See, again, we're going to review these Ka, all next The wheel of Ka continues to spin. Yeah, we're, we're going to uh, review this all next week. And that also means that you all have another week or so to get your own ratings and whether you've rated man of science man of faith yet or if you want to retouch and things i know i personally am going to go back and and retouch probably some of my ratings given some things in retrospect and especially maybe even retouch some season one things as well now that we Ooh. sort of have the two seasons to compare them to Look at so. you uh time traveling well i think it's it's a matter of like now that we've sort of i think two seasons and at least i personally have sort of set my own rubric and i think first season much like the people creating lost we were flying blind a bit and so now that I sort of have realized what makes a good Lost episode, in my opinion, I can sort of now go back and maybe retool some things. Because I do believe that we, we want to try to lay the season two episodes in the grand scheme of season one as well, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. We want to see what the, what the full list looks like next week. That's going to be one of the, the big orders of business. Uh, and we'll have that in the show notes for everybody. So we'll, we'll finally have an update on where season two and season one fit together in terms of the episode rankings. From the pilot through the season two finale, we'll be getting into your feedback next week. We already have a lot, but we hope that we'll get even more um, in the wake of this one. And we've got some more fun lost coverage uh, planned as we are going to be doing the feedback show next week. We're not starting season three 
next week. Um, I think we're expecting to start it in about two weeks. Mike, I think we'll talk offline and figure out exactly what that scheduling Mm -hmm. looks like um, as we're here in the summer. And we've got some lost bonus coverage that we definitely want to make sure we pay the right amount of attention to. Uh, So we'll see how all of that shakes out uh, in the next little while. But at least for now, put a pin in that rewatch. We're going to keep talking season two, and we'll start looking ahead towards season three as well in the feedback show next week. I'm really looking forward to it. Those that might not remember when we did our season one feedback show like six months ago, it's a general time to, I think in this case, we'll address a lot of questions from the episode itself. But if you have general questions about season two, or as Josh said, like questions about going into season three, this is the time to really answer them. It's going to be feedback and only feedback. Though, of course, I'm sure there'll be some other uh, streets we go down. We didn't even make a drinks on me reference with Desmond housing all that alcohol over the course of the episode. I feel disappointed in us. <laughs> you just did it, though. Yeah, I got it in right under the wire. But yeah, feel send us all us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Make sure you get us any and all feedback, and we are happy to answer it all. We love our hatchlings, especially as we're nearing the end of season two. Like this this podcast is only happening because there is such a virulent lost community in the post show recaps community out there. And I, I love getting to talk with you and have you essentially yell at us for our takes every week. It, it warms my heart to a certain extent. No, it's the best. It's the best. So we'll have more coming your way, coming out next week as we are going to talk about all things Season 2 in the rear view and start looking ahead through the looking glass at Season 3 with a feedback show. Uh, send your feedback in down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also hit us up on the Twitter bots at postshowrecaps. I'm at Rand Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. Mike, what else is going on? Josh, a little while ago, I said I'd get a Survivor tattoo and we've taken a major step forward, much like this episode takes a major step forward in many ways for Lost. Uh, at the time we are recording this, last night, myself, Rob Cesarino, and Jessica Lees got together to simulate a Brant Steele Survivor season, uh, a, a popular choice for many podcasts, including a Lost, couple Lost versions that you and I did here on Down the Hatch, uh, where we got to simulate 16 tattoo ideas and the victor of that season is going to be the one that gets tattooed on my body. I will not spoil what happens, but there is a Dharma logo in the mix. <laughs> will it okay. die out much like the Dharma logo in the Swan Hatch? You shall see. Check it All out. Right. It's in your podcast feeds on RHAP and on YouTube right now. All right. The tattoo quest is, is on. Good timing, too, as we're about to get into the tattoo season of Lost. Yeah, exactly. We are only a few episodes away from Jack's origin story. I guess mine is infinite. I wouldn't say I infinitely more You have the better tattoo origin story than Jack. That's say. not saying much. <laughs> I think it's pretty pretty handily uh, your victory there. All right, we'll be talking more Lost next week on the Feedback Show. Until then, everybody, take care. Goodbye. Four, eight, 15, 16, 20, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 